Hey, everybody, this is Scott. You're about to hear a typical opening from Macy, but before, I'm, I'm coming at you from the end of the episode. And what I'm going to say to you is that we, we bit off a lot tonight. I'm not saying more than we can chew, but we bit off a lot. And uh, we, we also made a, a pretty significant decision, which was to let Naranjo be our guide tonight. And it's heavy and dense and interesting. So we hope you're here for that material. We basically read about the passions through a, a book of Naranjos, and it gets pretty crazy. It gets pretty crazy, but we hope you're here for it. And if you stick around long enough, there is a really, really, really great rumination. Some thoughts about what's going on in our modern American context right now, and some poetry. So, and if you stick around to the end, you hear Scott laugh harder than I've ever heard Scott laugh. I don't know if I'm keeping that in. I, I, well, I probably will. I know, no, no. It's honestly the hardest I can. I, I, I've laughed in recent memory. I, I was. I lost it. I totally lost it. <laughs> so hopefully you like this episode, everybody. Welcome. Everybody, welcome to No Small Thing, the podcast dedicated to helping you live a less certain and more curious life. I am Macy. And I'm Scott. Welcome to episode number 105. Enneagram episode. Enneagram. Passion. <laughs> we're, well, we're uh, I like it. <laughs> we're going to try to start eventually incorporating some characters into our podcast i know some imagine one day you guys just close your eyes and imagine one day on the podcast all of a sudden scott interviewing a different character a different character that's just me yeah and maybe some people from my house improving characters yeah we want to start doing that it would be so hard i'm nervous but excited about the prospect it's play but it'd be so hard not to laugh i mean that's that's the next step it's like we would do you it. Be our straight and man. Laugh. You are our straight man. Yeah, yeah, it's true in many <laughs> different ways. Um, anyways, well, man, I just want to say about these Enneagram episodes. It's like I don't want to be an Enneagram podcast. Mm-mm. I don't want to just talk about the Enneagram, but I do want to be Enneagram. Uh, I don't want to say teachers, facilitators, instigators, Enneagram instigators, inspirers, inspirers, and but I am saying. I'm always feeling a little bit behind. Like there's so many Enneagram things I want to do. So many. So many. And the more I'm talking out in the world, especially through Enneagram reposts, everybody. Everybody go follow <laughs> at Enneagram reposts. Scott hosts that feed for you all. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm getting in contact with so many interesting people that I would love to interview. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But anyways, here we are with an Enneagram episode. Not Enneagram. An and we're going to be titling this one Enneagram and passions Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. should we get right into why we chose this topic and what we mean by that (laughs) what do we mean what does the passion this last week we coined this phrase passion it's something that macy and i created here we're gonna unpack that for you and tell you what we mean when we say the word passion (laughs) well well, passion isn't like this isn't like something you're passionate about no actually it's ultimately like sins yeah when we came in the house tonight matthew thought we were doing an episode just about everyday passion like what are our passions which legit would love to do an episode mm-hmm. on passion mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so see that one later yep 
So here we are. What do we mean by passions? What do we mean? We mean missing the mark. Mm. It's like, should I, should we the try and explain side? the yeah. shadow side? Yeah, go all in. Okay, okay. Oh, you want me to go all in? <laughs> oh, I'll go all in. Sure. <laughs> okay, so everybody, in the Enneagram, you've got your nine numbers. And the passion is essentially the the biggest factor or result, I guess, of your childhood wound. Hmm. And it pretty much is the base of why you do all the things. It's like the start of the domino of why you're doing the things that you're doing. It's Mm. because this is the thing it's called your passion because it's the thing that you don't have control of. Ah. It's the thing that is completely out of control and it's ruling your life without you really realizing it. Even if we weren't talking about the Enneagram, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's, that's an interesting concept, an important thing for someone to consider. Yes, that something's ruling their yeah. life and they're out of control. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Think about it, people. <laughs> Just sit on that one. I do feel like it, the energy of this episode, even leading up to it, is a, like even in the last hour talking here at the house, is like back to the back to the original energy of our Enneagram conversations. Like a big curious, oh my goodness, energy. Yeah. I don't think about the passions. Even everything you just said just now, I'm like, wow, crazy. I know. Well, and you know, the so the reason why why I think we were me and Scott were debating on what this episode was going to be. Debate's probably the wrong word. We were discussing <laughs> and we were deciding between if we were going to do stances or passions. And I was oh, like, "Oh, yeah, debating." I was, <laughs> it was far from a debate. <laughs> Give me your case of why we should do passions, and now I'll present my case. <laughs> I feel like it's almost always I'm like, "I really want to do this one." And Scott's like, a passion. "Cool." You're passionate about it. <laughs> okay, so in the past three months, when did freaking COVID hit mm. here? About three months ago? Two mm. months ago? Honestly, I don't know time anymore. But I think it was early, very early March. Very early March. And yeah. We're in June. So March, May, June. March, April, May. Holy. Jeez. Jeez. Okay. So I went on furlough, and I shared this in one of our COVID episodes. I went on furlough and went in shelter in place and had a breakup. Around all the same time. And so it was a lot of a lot of time to think and a lot of time for introspection and a lot of time to do some Enneagram research mm. and think about the Enneagram. And kind when of Macy has a breakup, it's time to bust open some Enneagram. Well, I mean, it's it's like <laughs> a breakup or something happening is such means for investigation and observation. It was like I got to see myself and reflect upon myself in the relationship and reflect upon myself now. And it reinterpreted so many things from the past and I'm able to see certain things. And so having all this time off of work. Okay, I just want to say something. And if you don't like it, we'll just, I'll just cut it out. Great. But uh, Macy was dating a two. I was. And there was a lot of, uh, research afterwards about relationships between fours and twos. <laughs> there was a lot of research in the beginning and a and lot of research after. at the end. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's... Is that okay? I, that probably is fine. <laughs> I think it's like goes without saying that that was happening, yeah. to be honest. Um, the other day I was scrolling through podcasts looking for something and one of them was like, Twos in a relationship, and I was like, "Do not mm, click, Macy. Mm, Do mm, not mm, click. Mm. <laughs> not helpful. Move forward." Um, okay, so it's been—is that a one? 
So a little bit of discipline. Discipline. The right thing. Don't yes. do that. Don't do don't it. Do it. Yeah, don't, don't do indulge. it. Um, no, no, no. No, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's le- maybe one, less one and more just being like so conscious of this is not what I need to do. Good job. I'm proud of you. Um, thank you. <laughs> I was proud of myself too. <laughs> so anyways, I think for me, the, the passion, and we're going to get into the passions and I'll get into my passion, but the passion of the four is envy. And I think as I, the Enneagram has all these layers and the passions are one of the layers that is, I think maybe one of the essential layers and like an outer layer, if it's an onion, no, an outer Mm. layer, is it an inner layer? I think it's like a base. It's like the bottom. Like if I'm looking at it, it's like you've got your childhood wound and then it's like that then for morphs into your passion and then it's everything is interpreted oh. through your passion and maybe if we're talking like through beatrice's metaphor it's the seed it's the seed yeah ooh, yeah yeah ooh, that is good <laughs> um and so then it's also we talk about subtypes and we talk about instinctual variants and when you look at subtypes which are within each number there's three subtypes based on your instinctual variant and the way in which people discuss how your subtype is created quote unquote is when you combine the force of your passion with your instinctual variant. So it's like the main factor they're looking at with your instinctual variant is that mashed with your passion because your passion is the driving force of why Uh, you're doing all the behaviors you're doing. The uh, the core is the passion. It's, it's your, it's your sin that you've got to deal with. It's your missing the mark all the time. Enneagram stuff. You turn into like a preacher. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, I'm slightly, um, Uh, intimidated like I get a little sweaty you know I'm like oh like when preachers get fired up I'm like I get a little sweaty I'm like oh I know I get so excited (laughs) just know that it's like I'm getting excited because so this past (laughs) I'm crazy this is good this is good okay so so I've been honestly focusing my Enneagram work on the passion. I feel like that has been my area of focus. Mm -hmm. And the other day I've gone back to work now. I've gone back to work and I check out our jobs episode. Yeah, Check it out. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about work and my relationships at work and then thinking about this breakup and my relationships there and reflecting on envy. And it, I feel like I've, I'm always, you know, we're always transforming. We're always changing. And envy is going to be with me my whole life, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it, I don't think I was really truly conscious of it until about two months ago when I was able to just see it so clearly in my face. Um, and I've gone back to work and I feel myself being less manic about my envy. Mm-hmm. Like I feel, you feel older, you said. I feel older. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I keep saying we'll get into it, but it's like my envy leads me to feeling inferior and having these weird ways I'm viewing people that's slightly distorted. And I think just having the time to be even at home and thinking about these people from work and my relationships and be away from it and then also be reflective on how so much of how I'm participating in them and so much of how I'm feeling in these relationships is often because of my envy. It's been really helpful going back and I feel like weirdly more confident hmm, hmm, as hmm, I hmm. head back. 
And it's been cool. And so I was like popping off to Ruben and telling him this. And I was like, oh my gosh, all these things. And then I was like, I hope we should do an episode on the passions. Because I think that this is, we talked about soul child and we talked about integrating. And I think in that episode, we were like, this is, this is one of the big healing things. Soul child, get connected with your inner child. And who are you impersonating? Right I'm there? impersonating me. <laughs> <laughs> This is one of the big things. <laughs> is that how you see yourself in retrospect? Shame. <laughs> I think it might be a little bit. And so I, I think that that is really big. But then I also am like the passion. There's so much work there. Mm-hmm. And I think getting in touch with your passion is where transformation can begin. I think that an honest assessment, an honest observation, and being really intentional about observing this passion in you, it will become more and more apparent. I think that's the thing I'm also realizing is like, oh, envy is not casual for me. Envy is literally everything. And it's all the time. And it's all my relationships. And it's in my face. Like the more I observe it, the more I'm like, yep, it's there. And it's happening in this and it's happening in this. And it's, it's really helpful because it's, it's getting to that base motivation and it's helping me see the layers and break it all down. Um, but it's also very shameful to realize that I'm literally always comparing and I'm just out here doing it. The the way you talk about this stuff is fairly singular, I think. And just let's just put you up in in the the category or up in the stands or whatever we want to say. S T A N D S. Okay, thank stands. you. Stands. Um, like put you up with a group of people of Enneagram personalities. You know, picture it. You 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 are a standout person in the sense of being the most brazenly honest about your passions and your foibles and your shortcomings. And there's something typically mostly entertaining about it. <laughs> and and it, it's, there's a release. That's what I've said to you before. I think there's like when somebody is able to acknowledge things about themselves, there's a very nice release in the room. You know, it's like, yeah. Oh, you get it. I'm so glad you know that you do that. Cause we all notice it. Yes. You know, yes. if you bring up to somebody like a nine or any type, you know, it's like, if you bring up to a two, you know, we kind of do notice that you give to get <laughs> and they go, Oh um, yeah, maybe sometimes I, I guess I kind of do do that. You know, you're like, Oh, this is awkward. But somebody goes, Oh, I totally do that. And Oh my gosh, isn't it? And it's like, Oh, whew. Yeah, you know, a big. T- you know, you understand. Yeah, that's yeah. so nice. You know, it's like, and you seem to have made some sort of peace with it. I mean, it's like you're obviously not proud of it, and but like you're also not like not wanting us to bring it up, and we can laugh about it. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, I mean, I think that in <clears> some <throat> ways that's its own fixation of a four too. Is like, of course, I'm very happy to self-deprecate. I have found an eloquent way to talk about how bad I am. Exactly. (laughs) You know, and it's, and there's also probably like, if I'm being really honest, which, you know, I love to be, there's, (laughs) there's probably a piece of me that can, and this, this is tied to envy. Everything is tied to envy with me that can feel superior to others because it's like, well, we all are fucked up, but I can articulate the ways I'm fucked up. Yeah. And that can, that can make me feel superior. It's either, it's either or for you. It is either or. It's this big swing. It's big swing. I'm, I'm the best or I'm the worst. (laughs) This is a nice little tease though. Don't say any more. I know. I can't give any more four away. (laughs) 
Does that sound interesting? <laughs> <laughs> um, Macy, in a little bit, we'll talk about being a four, and we'll give you some more thoughts on that. But uh, anything more you want to say about the passions? I mean, I have a lot more things okay, to say. Okay, let's do actually. it. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> this is really good. Um, okay, so... <laughs> a lot more things to say, actually. <laughs> I guess I don't have that many more things. I guess I'll say... Um, there's a really great podcast out there. I've now been referencing in any, every one of our Enneagram episodes and it's the Beatrice Chestnut 2.0 podcast. But also everybody just spend some time indulging in the first two minutes of the first episode. Please do. With the most ludicrous, outrageous, mind blowing, uh, I don't know what mistake. I, I don't know. Like, I, yeah, it's a musical Mistake number. or ultimate <laughs> success. I don't know. I don't know. It's something to experience. It, it, it's just the wildest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Teaser there. Um, oh, so the chestnut... Is the Chestnut Podcast is Aranyo Pies, Aranyo Pies, and Beatrice Chestnut, and they recently did an episode on the passions. So in some way, I'm like, we're kind well, of. Well, I'm going to do an episode. On the well, I feel a little bit like I hope you know we're not copying you. We're inspired. We're by not on you. their radar. Uh, maybe, but maybe it could be on their radar. Maybe. And oh yeah, be careful that plant always falls I'm nowadays. The one that knocked it over. I know it fell the other day too. Gosh. Um, okay, so. They did this episode on the passions and the virtues, and it was so good. It was so good, and it helped me significantly. So I think that's also I wanted okay. to share. Um, that's why you won the debate. That's why I won, yes. <laughs> but in it, Beatrice talks a lot about, you know, the Enneagram is has a lot of roots in ancient oral tradition, and she talks a lot about the Odyssey and how the Odyssey is this journey, and it's a journey of, like, self uh, reflection basically mm-hmm. and self discovery. Self discovery. That's mm-hmm. probably a better word for it. And they go from island to island, and each one of them, it's it is the passions mm-hmm. that is the thing that's most revealed. It starts with nine and it goes around. But then she also was discussing Dante's Divine Comedy mm-hmm. and all these images of purgatory mm-hmm. and how the images of Dante. And I don't know much about it. I've never read it, and I tried today to read an article. What? Nobody wants to read that. I mean, that's like, or the Odyssey for that matter. It's not casual reading. Well, it's true. Yeah. That's that's really true. But I was reading an article today and I was listening to this podcast where she talks about it. But I thought this was helpful in understanding the passions is that in the Divine Comedy in Purgatory, everybody has to go through these nine different parts of mm-hmm. Purgatory. Mm-hmm. But there's one that you will stay at the longest and there's one that will be your work and you have to do a lot of work in this area before you can move on. And so each one of them is kind of like the Enneagram ones. Can I share the four one? Please. No, I remember her going through this and I was like, oh my gosh, this is another new little insight to life. The fours is that they have to keep their head down so they can't be looking around and comparing and they have to wear plain sackcloth clothing. And I'm like, that is it right there. Like, that's the action. That's the purgatory action Mm -hmm. to work out of this passion. Mm -hmm. Um, Man, what was the twos? It was really interesting. Oh, I forget it. I forget the fives, too. But I remember that four one really stood out to me. I was just going to bring it up. But it it just makes me think of, like, this the yoga I do. We do different yoga, you and me. But, like, this this guy uh, does this thing called power yoga. But he always lectures people mid-session. 
He's like, stop looking around the room. And he always says this phrase. He's like, some of you got eyeballs on you like satellite dishes. <laughs> you know, he's like, stop comparing yourself. Stop looking around, you know? And it's like, that's his big thing. It's like, be here, be in the moment. Yeah. You know, don't, don't, don't everybody's don't body's different. Around. Yeah. 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 Um, so I think that that's really interesting. Man, I had a thought and it disappeared from my brain. Does Sada notice that I am the most excited about this? kundalini right now i'm i'm the most invested i'm don't the most say that. <laughs> don't say that it's true uh, <laughs> you've said that though too you're like i got a shout out on the <laughs> oh, big, big excitement about those kinds of things <laughs> um uh, mm, oh i guess my other last thought and then i'd love to hear if you have any thoughts no no I, I, no go <laughs> go 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 <laughs> um when we're having a conversation about the passions the passions are ultimately like the most negative of traits. It's not, you know, people when they're talking about the Enneagram are like, it's so negative. And it's like, well, we're going negative tonight. That's really helpful because like, if you want to grow, let's talk about the real stuff that's Mm -hmm. happening and let's help you to, Mm -hmm. to be something better than Mm -hmm. that. You know, it's like, it's not helpful to pat you on the back. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not, that's not what the Enneagram is here for. We're Um, not going to say tonight, Oh, eights, you're so strong and passionate and you're, you fight for justice. We're going to say, for like eights, eights, y'all you're are lusting. lusting. Yeah, you're lusting. <laughs> you're lusting eights. <laughs> um, but there is growth with the passions. So um, the Enneagram, the passions have what is like kind of like a paradox. So mm-hmm. you, there's paired with each of the passions is what's called the virtue. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's this higher level of consciousness that you can tap into that each number taps into that is ultimately their virtue that they offer the world. And it often feels very opposite to what their passion is. And yet it is also the thing in which each number is most adept to bring an offer as they overcome their greatest mm. shortfalling. Okay. So it's like... Never heard it that way either. So it's like I... Uh, I offer equanimity. Mm-hmm. A four offering equanimity as a virtue is there is is very powerful. It's not like the five offers equanimity as this grand virtue mm-hmm. that is. It's like your contribution to society almost. Mm. Um, mm. And it's like it's like each number has I when like they can access this virtue. It is like this great gift. It's the opposite of this falling short. It's this like wonderful meeting the mark. You're saying even better than when we were opening. Like, I have a new realization about that. Like, I don't know. I don't know if the best metaphor, it's like a spectrum or the opposite side of the coin or like the the silver lining. I don't know the best way to say it. Like, right. It's like they go together, these two things. If you do it, if you, if you, I don't know, if you can, if you can do it well, if you can, if you can, if you can tweak your passion, mm-hmm. it can become a virtue. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And it's, and it's what consciousness brings. Mm-hmm. It's, it's being conscious that will help you to not. So it's like you're manic about your passion, mm-hmm. but the first step in the Enneagram always is observation and being conscious and seeing it happen. And naturally, as you see these things happen, you're less a slave to it because you're aware of it. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. as you cultivate your awareness of it, you start to become less a slave to that and you're able to start to step outside of it and make conscious decisions that are the virtue. It's just kind of the way it seems like it's the natural next step kind of thing. That's good. I think those are some of my thoughts, and that's probably where I'll leave it. Passions, everyone. Passions. Passions. Think about it. Yeah. Think about it. 
Maybe you don't even know what the Enneagram is, and you're like, what the hell are they talking about? And that's fine. Go back True. and listen Maybe to Maybe you know episodes. what the Enneagram, and you're going, yeah. what the hell is Maisie talking about? If you listen to the No Small Thing podcast, I mean, we talk about the Enneagram, but so. <laughs> okay, should so, we? Oh, yeah, we should get going. I, and, I, and I do think, uh, yeah, when we come back, we're going to get right into it. We, tonight, and this is kind of going old school for us. It's kind of going old school for No Small Thing. In a good way. We got a book. So we're going to read parts of a book and talk about it. And we're going to go through each number. So if you're listening, you're like, what about my number? It's like, well, we're going to talk we'll go about through that. all the numbers. And if for any Enneagram, fa- Enneagram fans out there, we're going to be reading Naranjo tonight. Naranjo. So we were big Naranjo fans. Did uh, you have any other thoughts on passion? No, no, okay. no. Promise. Promise. Great. We'll see you on the flippity flop when we come back from this break. We're back, and we have Naranjo. What is this, Character in Neuroses? Is that yes. the title of this book? Yes. Now, yep. Do you want to say something else about that? No. I was going to say it's going to be in a weird order tonight, and that's kind of fun. Get ready for a weird order. Um, I don't even think it's in the order of... It's not the order of the hexad. It's, it's just not. random. He probably has explained the order. Oh, I'm we sure. Know. We haven't read this whole book, but uh, I do want to say, everybody, I don't want to get too lost on this topic, but like, there are some... Early teachers, early teachers. And we did a history of the Enneagram and we deep dive these three people. Please go back to the history Gertrude, of the Enneagram. Ichazo and Naranjo. And out of those three, we're, we're a little bit borderline canceling Ichazo. Mm-hmm. And we're standing Naranjo and Gertrude. We stand Naranjo, we stand Gertrude. <laughs> I, I think between you and I, mm-hmm. I for sure lean Gertrude and you right. lean Naranjo. And I think that, that shows something about our types. Because, mm-hmm. because Gurchev, I'm just like Gurchev. Come on, with just these flowy dances and and getting into your body, and I'm like, no, no, let's think about it. It is the Enneagram the symbol. Gurchev is an eight, I believe. Oh, interesting. And Nirano is a five. Okay. Yeah. You also liked this idea that maybe we're gonna <laughs> literally attempt someday of like getting people drunk and talking about. I want to do that so badly, <laughs> so much. Yes. <laughs> I've actually texted you and Daniel about this, and Can we I just do it? need to make it happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's what Gertrude used to do. I know. I, that's why I just said it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Naranjo is a five. Yeah. Actually just died last year, interestingly enough. Yeah. But um, I accidentally, Macy and I went to a used bookstore and looked for Enneagram books, and I accidentally found Naranjo. Without knowing you Didn't were know getting the best. Just thought it was some random Enneagram teacher. And as I was reading, I was like, this is great. Yeah. The way he's talking is the is the my jam. Yeah. Naranjo was kind of the father of the modern Enneagram, mm-hmm, people mm-hmm, would say. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was Naranjo's teachings that were then brought to America in, in Berkeley that then kind of created this huge spread of the modern Enneagram. And he, I mean, it's interesting what happened because I think for a long time and maybe till the end, he was very frustrated with what happened with his work. Probably. Um uh, and, and and he's it's complicated. A, a, it's a web. Uh, uh, he has he's a psychologist. Like he has a PhD. You know, yeah. he's like out here, like a, re- a real credible 
person. Very psychoanalytic way yeah. of approaching. Okay. Okay, get let's get right, right, into, right into it. The one. We're not <gasps> going to read much. Anger. Anger and perfectionism is the passion. But yeah, I think anger, anger is anger considered is the, the one. Uh, uh, people refer to these things as the, the deadly sins, but mm-hmm. there's nine in the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. Two were tacked on. I think avarice is one of them that was tacked on. In right? is sloth? No, sloth is one of the main seven. I forget the other one that was tacked on. All right, well, we'll just keep okay, going. Whatever. We'll realize it Here later. Here we go. Self-defeat? Um, oh, no. my gosh. Listen to this. Core theory, nomenclature, and place in the Enneagram. I don't know. We're just going to read this. <laughs> <laughs> we may consider wrath in three ways. So wrath. Is another word for anger. So we're talking about Enneagram ones here, everybody. We may consider wrath in three ways, says St. Thomas in questions disputate. <laughs> Firstly, a wrath which resides in the heart, also in so much as it flows into words, and thirdly, in that it becomes actions. The survey scarcely brings to mind the characteristics of the perfectionistic type as we will be portraying it here. Yes, there is anger in the heart, mostly in the form of resentment, Yet not so prominently as anger may be experienced by the lusty, the envious, or the cowardly. As for verbal behavior, it is most characteristic of the anger type to be controlled in the expression of anger. Hmm. Yes, I, I know that. In any of its explicit forms, we are in the presence of a well-behaved, civilized type, not a spontaneous one. In regard to action, any type one individuals do express anger, yet mostly unconsciously, not only to themselves, but to others, for they do so in a way that is typically rationalized. In fact, much of this personality may be understood as a reaction formation, defense mechanism, against anger, a denial of destructiveness through a deliberate, well-intentioned attitude. Mm -hmm. That's it. It's saying it right there. I see it. And so this is also funny when you know about the drama behind these teachers. He's about to re- reference Achazo, but he also didn't like Achazo. <laughs> Oscar Achazo's definition of anger as a standing against reality. That's the definition? Has the merit of addressing a more basic issue than the feeling or expression of emotion. Still, it may be useful to point out at the outset that the label, quote-unquote, anger type, is scarcely evocative of the typical psychological characteristics of the personality style in question, which is critical and demanding rather than consciously hateful or rude. Hmm. Ichazo called the enneotype ego resent, which seems a psychologically more exact portrayal of the emotional disposition involved, one of protest and assertive claims rather than mere irritability. In my own teaching experience, I started out calling the character's fixation intentional goodness, Later, I shifted to labeling it perfectionism. This seems appropriate to designate a rejection of what, in terms of what is felt and believed should be. I guess I'll just share one more little... A little tidbit? Go on and on. Christian writers... I'm not so fully satisfied yet with this one. <laughs> Christian writers who shared an awareness of anger as a capital sin, that is to say, as one of the basic psychological obstacles to true virtue, mostly seem to have failed to realize that it is precisely under the guise of virtue that unconscious anger finds its most characteristic form of expression. That's great. An exception is St. John of the Cross, who in his Dark Night of the Soul writes with character, characterological exactitude as he describes the sin of wrath in spiritual beginners. Okay. That's ones. Uh, that's a lot. It's a lot. I prefer it. I prefer that more intellectual approach. It's, it's a very intellectual approach. So we're just going to go full on tonight. 
Right, and then we'll, we'll each just share a few thoughts about it. Yeah. I've listened to a few podcasts, have some thoughts. We've got thoughts on these things. Now, I'm gonna. Did, did we have any ones respond to our Instagram? Oh post yeah, today? we should be checking. Yeah. Okay, so one thing that what I heard stands today. Out to you? Well, one thing that I heard today that I thought was really interesting was they were talking about anger in ones. And I have a few thoughts. First of all, I think ones are fascinating in that I think of the anger types, well, nines are also in the anger triad and so are eights. But ones and eights to me feel like the most angry, but ones are like pretending like they're not angry the whole time and it's in their body. And it's, it's kind of, you can see it's driving everything they're doing. And I was listening to Aranyo Pies and he was talking about the inner critic Mm -hmm. and how the voice of the inner critic is almost always primarily anger. So Mm. the inner critic, which is for people who don't know the ones experience this relationship internally of always having what they call this internal critic, this Mm -hmm this voice in their head that's always telling them how they're feeling. And that's the voice that they're constantly hearing. And that Mm -hmm. voice is always of anger. So it's their inner critic and their critiques of the world Mm -hmm. are all driven by the anger. I picture, and this is an, this is sort of an eighties metaphor. So like, I'm sure you understand it too. It's probably not even eighties. Now that I say it, everybody's going to laugh. It's like, this is just a thing, but it's like, it's like any of those little toys that you push in Play-Doh through, mm-hmm. you know, you put the Play-Doh in and you push the thing down and all these like strands come out or whatever, you know? Yeah. Play-Doh yeah. I know. Toys. Yeah. I do know what you're talking about. Anger for a one. It feels like just in that reading is like gets shoved in the machine and then pushed out into a different way, but it's there. Mm. It's just getting expressed through mm-hmm, judgment, mm-hmm. like sort of a cold finger wagging. Yes. No, no, no. Yes. And, and the thing that's motivating that external expression is anger. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's coming out that way. But but ones will never let them be themselves be out of control, quote unquote. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 a controlled anger in a mm-hmm. way, but it's always bubbling and it's always there in a denial, which we mentioned this reaction formation, which if folks don't know what that is, what that basically is happening in your brain is you believe one thing, you maybe have a desire in your yourself. This was the opening of our live show. Yes, you, this was. You essentially described reaction formation. <laughs> I know. Well, I feel like it's it's a it's a very fascinating defense mechanism. But basically, you believe one thing in your internal self, your desire, your your reaction is having this feeling, but then something is telling you that that's not okay. And so what you do is to make peace with that is that you deny this desire or this thing that you're having and form an opposite desire or belief about it. So one can be like manically nice. Yes. Your one's being like nice to you and you're like, you're pretending. Yeah. I can feel and it. You're they pretending. may not even realize yeah. the extent in which they're pretending. Yeah. Um, so it's that then just builds and it's that, that is the primary defense mechanism of the one. Woo. It's just out there. Dang. We have a one response. <gasps> we do. This is from Meow Laney. I think we've interacted with Mialini a few times. We are following Mialini. Um, some one heat here. Enneagram one here. Anger, heat. resentment. I like to think of it as resentment, though. I have to really work on not holding a grudge. It's not the one thing you did. It's all the little things that you did wrong that made something more difficult for me because you didn't follow the rules. Dang. Yeah. Yeah. Big Enneagram thoughts. That's it. That's to it. be angry and express to you when you don't follow the rules, that one time is so hard for me. 
I just store them all up and explode on you for the 50 rules you broke over the last year. Woof. Dang. Woof. I'm so grateful for the Enneagram because I'm finally able to catch myself when I start putting the tally marks up. It hurts That's so good. much to know that I have exploded on my loved ones for rules that are only written in my head and nowhere else. Dang, that's yeah, good. That is good. That is really good. That's really good. I work with a few ones, and there's one in particular that I can think of where knowing the Enneagram has literally helped me to understand this person mm-hmm. so wholeheartedly. And in a weird way, and I don't, I don't think this is great Enneagram, but I, I don't know for sure that he's a one, but I can really assume, and it's so helpful for me thinking of him that way. It's just like, it gives me a lot of grace, but it's like when he corrects things, it comes across as being very judgy and angry. And I think it's helpful for me to just be like, just know that this person is thinking of themselves and what they're doing with the same, they're bringing that same amount of intensity and critique and oh, anger to what they're saying. Way. You're like, Oh man, that must be so, so much to hold. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, and it makes me feel like, they're not treating me any differently than they're treating themselves. Mm -hmm. Like them coming up and telling me how to do this specific procedure and then the right order and like in a weird way being like, you've been doing it wrong the whole time, finger wagging. I can be like, well, that's because they're also doing that for themselves. Like that's always happening internally. Yeah. Um, no, it's and true. I think that that's, that's the thing. So the virtue point of the anger is serenity, um, which feels really wild and Beatrice and Naranda both mentioned like in their workshops when they're working with ones who can get into a place of peacefulness and serenity and kind of letting go and Mm. like releasing some of their critique and releasing some of this anger like how beautiful that is Mm. and how like how that is inspiring to other people. Mm. Like when a one can be in a place of serenity, like that's a really beautiful, powerful Mm. thing. Dang. Which is like, this is explaining more like the virtues, like a nine being in serenity isn't the same thing as a one being in in serenity. Like a one releasing the tension and releasing the anger has the, it's doing something there. I don't know what to describe. Maybe it's that using that desire to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And the right thing is serenity. The right thing is calm. The right mm-hmm. thing is a level head. The right thing is not this manic need to like control and, you know, judge. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And they can, they can be like, and being at sh- peace with like things are the way they are. You can't mm-hmm. fix everything. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not ever going to work, mm-hmm. you know, kind of moving towards this space of acceptance. All right, we got to keep going. Yep, should we go to the... Okay, okay. Ones, we love you, by the way. Ones. I love all the ones in my life. I, as a four, need everyone I can get. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, 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 okay. Here we go. Everyone I can get. (laughs) Macy's collecting ones. I'm not collecting ones, but I'll just say, like, it's my path to integration, and I think I'm so grateful for ones who provide stability in my life, who provide principle in my life who tell me when I'm doing things wrong, who help uphold systems. You know, this anger also drives some really great things. It's just I don't, how we harness it. I don't, um, I don't have, uh, I have no animosity or judge or hard feelings towards any type. And I know every type has something to teach me. I'm just very aware that, uh, let me think. I think this is true. One's, 
And this may say something. My dad is a one and my mom's a two. Yeah. And ones and twos are your toughest, I feel like. Uh, ones can trigger me so fast. Yeah. When somebody says, this is the way, I want to just laugh in their face. I'm like, what are you talking about? With logic. Like, what do you mean this is the way? Are you crazy? With the history of the world, you're, you know the way. Like, this one way. It's just like, oh. But <laughs> that's interesting. I do think I have a seven and a nine parent, and I think those might be the toughest numbers for me. That's <laughs> fascinating. That's a whole episode. That is fascinating. Oh well, somebody actually requested that we talk about parents. Mm. So maybe, maybe. Okay, okay, you guys. This is a funny order, and we're already at the five. So okay, we're already about to talk about Scott. avarice, not and to I be pronounced we'll avarice. I think we'll just do the same amount for sure. Yeah. But I'll be curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Okay. So avarice, as a spiritual missing of the mark or spiritual hindrance, avarice must be naturally, avarice must have naturally been understood by the church fathers in more than its literal sense. And so we see confirmed in Chaucer's, Chaucer's, there you go, Parson's tale from the Canterbury Tales. Yes, yes. (laughs) We're getting to the juice here. Canterbury Tales. A reflection of the spirit of his time. Avarice consists not only of greeds for lands and chattels, but sometimes for learning and for glory. (laughs) Glory. I got to think about that. If the gesture of anger is to run over, that of avarice is one of holding back and holding in. While anger expresses greed in an assertive, even though unacknowledged way, greed and avarice manifest only through retentiveness. This is a fearful grasping, implying a fantasy that letting go would result in catastrophic depletion. That's yeah. it right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Behind the hoarding impulse, there is, we must say, an experience of impending impoverishment. <laughs> this is showing up in my dreams. Oh, it does. That's true. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes. Holding on is only half of any type five psychology. The other half is giving up too easily because mm. of an excessive resignation in regard to love and people. Precisely. There is a, comp- a resignation toward love and people to love and people, a resignation in regard in to regard love and regard to love. Yes. 100%. Yeah. I don't get that line even. <laughs> <laughs> I, I told you this the other day. I resent anyone that I enjoy. <laughs> I'm like, you've now made me not, like, detached. Like, I like you now. Yes. And, and I don't like this emotion you've brought up in me. Yeah. And now I don't like you. Or I resent you. I'm mad at you. Because now, because I then have the power. So, like, example of me, someone who you like, I can say something and it affects you. Mm-hmm. Because I don't like you... that. I don't like that I've given you that power. Yikes. <laughs> I'll use it well. <laughs> Okay. Uh, there is a compensa- compensatory compensatory mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. clutching at oneself, which may or may not manifest in a grasping onto possessions, but involves a much more generalized hold over one's inner life as well as an economy of effort and resources. The holding back and self-control of avarice is not unlike that of the anger type, yet it is accompanied by a getting stuck through clutching at the present without openness to the emerging future. It just oh. happened. It just happened. Let's just say got, this because it's getting. Yeah. So we just did an episode about like what we'd talk about in between takes. And we literally had a section called Scott got stuck and it happened last night. And it was like, I'm just like, this is, this is where I need to keep growing as a human. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. So 
we, we, we unpacked this for like an hour as a family. This is just, I was not planning on talking about this, but it came up. It's like, um, we're trying, I'm trying, this is, this sounds crazy, but I'm trying to like hold off on, especially in quarantine. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that resonate with this. It's like, we're all stuck in these houses. It's easy to overindulge. Yeah. So I'm like, let's try to eat healthy. Let's try to exercise and maybe let's hold off on drinking to like nine or 10, you know? But it's like really easy to just be like almost a vac- vacation mode, like four o'clock. Here I go, a cocktail, drinking, having fun, beers, you know. Yeah. So I was like, we're not gonna drink, and we're also eating fairly healthy. And um, I, I came up stairs for dinner, and we had ordered this amazing pasta dinner, like four different types of pastas. It was like takeout, mm-hmm. and it smelled delicious. And there was a bottle of amazing wine open and I was just like overwhelmed and I just sat there and and instantly my family everybody's like what's up what's wrong Marissa's like what's wrong like this is fun and I'm like I just need a second I feel disoriented and everybody's like disoriented Marissa's like I opened a bottle of wine for you this is delicious pasta and I was like I was expecting like leftovers and like LaCroix and everybody's like okay well now there's amazing pasta and there's wine and I'm like I was like, can I just have a second? And everybody's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, I don't know what's wrong. Just give me a second. And everybody's just so confused. And I'm confused. <laughs> but like, I, you know, most people would come up and be like, wow, wine, pasta, dinner, fun. You know, and I'm just like, I've, I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed. This is I'm not stuck. what I expected. I can't, I can't bounce totally back. Stuck. What's going on? I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I'm stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. It's hard. What did you end up doing to move forward? Well, I mean, with the proper people around me, it's it's helpful to talk about it, honestly. Yeah. But, yeah. but 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 I feel like you and I have experienced some things in recent times where I I don't always have to talk about like just moving on is the best. I know we've been getting better yeah, at that. Moving right on. Shout I don't out. Don't need to indulge this. Could yeah. you talk a little bit about like this like hoarding of resources? And yeah, what that yeah. Means for you? I have another thought that came up too. Okay, cool. Where I was Go like, one five sees a five, and I don't know if Sufjan Stevens is a five. He seems five ish. But um, there's this thing of like, and, and I, and I, and again, I mean, maybe this is what we're talking about. This is a thinking out loud, like a vacillating between two extremes, you know? On attachment, I'm still figuring out what, what an attachment that's supposed to be my virtue is. But like, Emotional non-attachment. Emotional non-attachment, not unattachment. Um, Sufjan Stevens, and I don't even, I haven't checked in on his blog in a long time, had a very, very simple, vague, and pretentious blog. Mm-hmm. He, would so, he would sound off on something in a very cryptic, but you could tell very thought out and intentional way. So if something was going on politically, or he would post something, this was my statement on this no more, you know, vague, but direct and somewhat provocative and somewhat insightful. And I, I was just like, I love this. Mm-hmm. Like, I love this. I love that it's not blog after blog, after thought, after tweet, after. And I'm like, that's what I want. I want yeah. to be vague and cryptic and, uh, and, and less is more. You get this. This is what you get. I researched all this, but you get this and that's all. Hmm. No more. And I just think that's a great energy, you know, but it's, it's, it's also selfish. How, why is it selfish? 
Well, I mean, if we're thinking about like our last week's episode about Black Lives Matter, this isn't a time to be vague and worry about your right, ego right. and and just be all in, and and be all like micromanaging of your image and how you're coming across. Yeah, it's like talk, yeah. talk, 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 talk. Yeah. Say more. You know, don't worry about how you come across. Don't worry yeah. about this ego that you're protecting. Yeah, that you know, makes sense. And you're gonna mess up, and it's not gonna sound cool. I mean, that's another thing. Like Sufjan even seemed cool. Like, just mm. seemed so cool and pretentious. And I just ate that up. I was like, this is cool, you know. And it's like, yeah. I mean, if I can sh- switch it and say the cool thing now is just to be slop, not sloppy, but like, um, maybe eight. Like, honestly, just Engage. like talk, yeah. keep talking, you know. Um, and if you read something, share it. You know, mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. if you have an article, share it. Don't be like. I've read 20 articles and I'm just going to share some sound bites from what I've read this week. And, and then I, I don't follow up on that. I just go, here it is. And then I go back to my little cave, you know? Right. And it's like, you know, the knowledge, but you're only willing to give so much of it. Mm-hmm. Cause is there part of it of like relinquishing some of that knowledge is giving other people power? Does it make oh. you less safe? Um, yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Like, inevitably, we don't know everything. Mm-hmm. So if I can just share the thing that I know and share it well mm-hmm. and maintain a, an, an image that uh, that I probably know more than... Like, if somebody goes, wow, he knows so much, mm-hmm. and I and, and they, they have that image of me because I've only shared the best parts of what I know. Yeah. And then it's like... The opposite is like if I'm just talking out loud and learning as I go and somebody goes, well, he doesn't actually know that much. Right. And I go, I mean, I mean, that's the crazy thing about a five. It's like you really can't know anything. Like, what do you what do you mean? No. Like all there is to know about the world, about space, about history, about this, uh, this one house we're in right now. I will never know about the land that we're on, the, the materials to build this house. The stories that go on. There's just never ending things to know. Like mm-hmm. you just, there is no such thing as omniscience. Mm-hmm. You don't know. Nobody mm-hmm. knows, you know, but like you want somebody to think, you know, and you don't want somebody to think you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's like total f- complete failure for yeah. a five. Yeah. It's if they don't, if they're not competent in yeah. things. I want people to be like, he knows. Yeah. He's the one. We're having this conversation. Ask Scott. That's like, yes, I love that feeling. Yeah, come to me. I have the yeah. knowledge. I'm the keeper. And I think it's it's interesting. The images we get of fives are like the, the mind castle, mm-hmm. which feels like avarice-y. It feels greedy almost. You mm-hmm. up in your own little castle, like a time hoarder almost. Yeah, yeah. And just it's just, um, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I mean, this could be an episode. You know, it's like we, we got to be a little bit disciplined. But like we do. Do there's, we. there's a guy that I like to follow that a lot of people probably follow on YouTube. His name's Anthony Fantano. He's a... Music you just reviewer. did Run the Jewels. I, I watch it, and uh, and it's triggering for me. And it's like a love hate relationship, you know, because he says two things. <laughs> he says two things that kind of trigger me. He says, uh, inter- in the internet's greatest music nerd, or the internet's biggest music nerd." Mm-hmm. And his big thing is like, "I'm out here nerding out on the music. There's nobody more nerdy than me." Mm-hmm. And so, first of all, I'm watching him, and I'm thinking, he knows so much on the fly. And I and I have a hard time believing that he didn't research before he did this little segment. Well, I'm sure he does. But I also think I also think he truly just knows a lot about music. Yeah. But sometimes I'm just like I w- maybe between takes I would have made sure I knew something. You know. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I I resent that he knows so much about music. Um, 
but I also love it. Like mm-hmm. it's my vibe. I'm like, he knows a lot about music. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and he says this thing too, as a joke, he goes, the best teeth in the game. And he does have really nice teeth. And I'm like, I have nice teeth. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's like us with Seattle's number one podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the best teeth. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, does, did anyone comment that was a five? Yes, yes, yes. Sarah D. Um, fi- s- side note, he, he did have a fun, playful, very respectful, playful, uh, like debate with Anderson Pack, who's like a hip hop drummer, or singer, mm-hmm. songwriter, who also has very aggressively nice teeth. Hmm. And Anderson Pack was like, About who is the best teeth yeah, in the he's game? He's like, Sorry, people, people that follow Anthony Fantown call him Lemon because he has a bald head. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, sorry, Lemon, I got the best teeth in the game. And they had like this back and forth debate. <laughs> um, Sarah, a five here. Avarice shows up with my time and emotions. I am selfish with my time and don't want to give up things I do independently, like read, write, and think. Yes, everything. Only the closest to me, quote unquote, get access to my emotions. That's you. I tear up just thinking about that. And even then, I think I can hoard my emotions and keep them to myself. I definitely don't make myself available for many obligations. And when I do, I can be annoyed by it. I am a nurse, and a lot of my life involves, quote, unquote, giving without choice. That feels like me with being a pastor sometimes. It's my job. So I probably give less in my personal life. Absolutely. Yeah, that's you. That's you. Can't wait for this episode, she says. Well, we'll see. (laughs) We're getting pretty lost in the weeds, but it's good. Um, Yeah. I mean, I see this Mm -hmm. in you. Very easily, mm-hmm. especially as someone we talk about all these things. It's it's very obvious the driving force. I mean, it's you're aware of resources, you're aware of time, you're aware of how much energy you're giving, you're aware of how much you're giving. Yeah, that's good. That's a good way of saying it. Like I, I noticed that other people are just sharing emotions and sharing fun and sharing. It's obvious it's coming at a cost to you. Yeah, and I'm being very intentional about it. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna share my emotions here. And as I'm sharing, it's almost like Dumbledore pulling the wand and taking a memory out, the pensia. Oh. You're like, here it is. Uh, here. Oh, you know? the, oh, but I wanted to keep it. <laughs> um, okay, we'll quickly just say the virtue is non-attachment. Non-attachment. Um, which I think, do you, would you have a way of describing what non-attachment looks like yeah, for you? Yeah, I think, I think at my best, and this, this can get twisted as well, but like we're, I can I can keep a pretty cool head in emotional situations, um, and I can use that. I, it, I, like these can be used for evil. Like I can use it to 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 make somebody feel ashamed. Yeah. I can use it to make people feel like, wow, you're really losing it. Like, look, look at you, you know. Yeah. But in my best, I'm the one that's like everyone's freaking out, and I'm calm. Like yeah. I'm really truly calm. I'm not. Yeah. You know. That's true. I wonder too if non-attachment here is also thinking about in terms of possessions and knowledge and all these things that non-attachment is letting go of the hoarding. Absolutely. It's being not attached to those things. Yeah, here's it's, the information. It's it is what it is. letting go of the resources. It's opening this. your hands. It's, it's not being so attached to having all your finances in order. It's not yeah. being so attached to your energy. It's starting to release it almost. Mm-hmm. I think release is a good word for these virtues. Yeah, maybe for the virtues. Release is a strange word. Release is a strange word because it feels sexual. Does it? Yeah, it feels like orgasmic. You know, and, and we were thinking about like um, meditation. I th- I'm obsessed, continuing to to obsessively watch uh, Midnight Gospel. I oh keep my gosh, watching. Scott cannot stop. It's but, amazing. But it's like me with things. And and people know this. It is. It is honestly. It's like a. It's like Midnight Gospel is my Twenty One Pilots. Um, <laughs> 
But like being reminded of like meditation being like a, a mini death mm-hmm. and that um, org- orgasm is a mini death. Mm-hmm. And so there's a release, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that is also very complicated. It feels scary and amazing at the same time. Yeah. Um, letting go, a yeah. release, you know, that's, that can be fantastic, but it's also scary. You know, I like it's this connection. Intimate. I like yeah. this connection. We're just going there. <laughs> okay. Anything else? No, on no, we should avarice? go. We should okay, we going. should get going. Okay, guys, next one. It's going to be the forest. <laughs> oh, we're already there? Yeah, That's fun. We're just like in the middle here. Like yeah. one and then. Yeah, you're the one reading. Forest. Yeah. Oh, oh, let's do it. I'm so excited. <laughs> Is it here? Are we there? I. You have to flip to it. Do you want to say anything as I'm flipping? Envy, everybody. Envy. It's what's about to happen. I'm going to feel probably some shame as we share about it. Um, yeah. Comparison is really the name of the Comparison. game here. Comparison. Wow, this is a long chapter. Okay. Envy and depressive masochistic character. Yes. Yes. I'm excited about this. Um, core theory. Okay. Uh, the emotional state of envy. Have you read this? Not recently. Yes. I for sure read it, but okay, not recently. Real-time reaction. The emotional state of envy involves a painful sense of lack. Yes, it's more longing. Longing <laughs> is the better word for envy here. Go ahead. And a craving toward that which is felt lacking. The situation involves a sense of goodness as something outside oneself which needs to be incorporated. Yes, that sounds real to you. <laughs> Though an understandable reaction to early frustration and deprivation, envy constitutes a self-frustrating factor in the psyche for the excessive craving for love that it entails never answers the chronic sense of inner scarcity and badness, but on the contrary, stimulates further frustration and pain. Ay, ay, ay. Woo. Frustration is a natural consequence of envy. In addition, even desiring can be can lead to painful situations. 100%. As portrayed by Quevedo in his Dream of Hell, when he tells us that when the envious arrive there and see the different souls subjected to the various tortures of the hell realms, they are frustrated and suffer by seeing that there is no place reserved for them. <laughs> that would be me. That is amazing. That is amazing. That is, we're all so weird. Oh, my gosh. I would be like, great. <laughs> You're like, I want to be tortured. <laughs> Where's my spot? <laughs> The position of envy in the Enneagram is that of a satellite to vanity and a neighbor to point five. Well, Matthew was saying that before. Neighbors. Avarice, which entails a comparable sense of deprivation to envy, though it involves a different attitude in face of the experience of scarcity, while point four represents a forceful reaching out, an intense demand for that which is missed. Point five is characterized by a psyche, psychic attitude of giving up the expectation of anything receiving from the outside. Mm-hmm. and rather a concern about holding in one's energy, caring, and attention. The connection with vanity is even more important than the one with avarice, since point four constitutes a member of the triad in the right corner of the Enneagram, which as a whole gravitates around an excessive concern with the image of the self. While an Enneagram type three person identifies with the part of the self that coincides with the idealized image, the Enneagram type four individual identifies with that part of the psyche that fails to fit the idealized image and is always striving to achieve the unattainable. Here is a person animated by vanity that fails to reach its goal because of the admixture of the sense of scarcity and worthlessness. 
I'm going to keep reading a little bit. Okay. Even though the Enneatypes mapped at the positions four and five, envy and avarice, have in common the sense of worthlessness, guilt, and lack, and both may be described as depressed. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> they are in marked contrast in various regards. While guilt and envy is conscious torture, in avarice it is partially veiled over by a seeming moral indifference hmm. that it shares with Enneagram type eight and constitutes a rebellion against its own excessive demands and accusations. While the depression and envy manifests as overt grief, yeah. the, avaricious, the avaricious often have trouble in crying. It's true. Or with contacting their pain, so that their depression manifests rather as apathy and a sense of emptiness. It may be said that Enneagram 5... Why are we reading about Enneagram 5? I don't know. We're reading about 4s here. Is a dry... Oh, this is good. <laughs> Matthew, they're confirming everything you said. Four and five, avarice and envy are very similar, it says. Yeah, yeah, you are. <laughs> it may be said that Enneagram 5 is a dry depression, that contrary is. to the wet depression of Enneatype 4. Bring it on! <laughs> this is true. This is really true. Just as avarice <laughs> is resigned, envy is passionate. Yes. In this is reflected a sharp, differentiated feature. We're just kind of talking about ourselves right now, the two of us. Dry avarice is apathetic, wet envy most intense. If the one is a desert, the other is a marsh. The French use of envy to mean desire underscores the implicit observation that envy is the most passionate of passions. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> it's so bad. We're going to keep talking about Enneagram 5 here. <laughs> well, Enneagram 5 involves an internal atmosphere of quietness. Enneagram 4 involves an atmosphere of turmoil and turbulence. The most characteristic aspect of Enneagram 4 character, besi besides envious motivation, may be seen in the tendency to self-victimization and frustration. We could go on and on. Could I'm go getting on. really worked up about that because it's very interesting. What do you think? Okay, I have lots of thoughts, obviously, but I'll be I'll be chill about it. Okay, so be chill about it. So Don't get passionate. Yeah, I gotta I gotta <laughs> keep my equanimity, which yeah. we could talk about that. But um yeah, I mean it's real. Envy is real. Um I think that they said it best there about like the lack or the longing. So I'll just explain what it is for me. Here we go. It is this constant going around and comparing mm -hmm. and looking at someone or something and measuring myself next to it. Mm. It's this, this need to see my place with something. And I, I tend to either feel like I am superior to that thing or I'm inferior, but both are being driven by this envy. It's this wanting, it's this longing. It's, mm. it's, it's the, what I don't have. So when I'm feeling inferior, it looks a lot like me looking at someone being envious of them and wanting to be that person. York. York, but like legit relationships in my life too. Like I can think of a lot of people at work. I can think of a lot of people in like specific, like Megan Fate could be mm -hmm. an example of this. Mm -hmm. Professors. It's like I have a way of idolizing people that's like this deep envy. And it's... It's like you're, you are kind of interjecting. You're consuming them. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm going to be a better version of that even. You're yeah. pumped. I'm pumped. No, no, no. I'm pumped. Well, and you know? <laughs> it sometimes manifests in me like wanting to, it, I feel like it actually mostly manifests in me feeling literal, littler than that person. Like uh, I'll make uh, space uh, for that person. I'll, all it's not, it's not like a fine. Okay. It's I'm, like I'm, a, I'm misreading it. You, you say it. It's like a, it's, 
being deferential to that person. It's it's seeing them as mm. so like so the thing with fours and equanimity is the thing. It's like the the work for a four is to realize that every single person has the same amount of value that they're offering, including myself. Hmm. So it's like if I'm idolizing someone, then I the what's happening there is I'm seeing them as being more valuable than oh, myself. Oh, and you're so saying it. so the work is oh. to realize that no nobody's more or less valuable oh. than someone else. We're all on an equal playing field and we all have something Dang. to offer. Dang. And I'm not less than this person and I'm also not better than this person. So I also can easily get into a headspace of feeling superior and feeling better than and that also is driven by this envy because it's driven by the comparison and it's the it's looking to someone and seeing myself as better than and so that could drive something and then to think there's some people that aren't thinking about life in terms of the scale better not better right and it's like it's i didn't honestly i didn't know i was doing this until the enneagram like i didn't know that this is what's happening and now i can look and see things and be like i'm almost always doing that and i'm always i mean it's makes it's really hard on myself like it's not fun Mm -hmm. to be in this constant state of longing or wishing for what was or thinking things could be better or thinking i could be better or never being satisfied Mm. like contentment is the work for me and the envy is me being discontent it's me always wishing for something different than what is instead of just being okay with what is it's so hard because we all bring a gift and i do like i don't know if it's like a five wing four type thing for me because maybe i can get into the envy headspace but like I do I do love how we fan out on people. Like right. I do love how we've been fanning out on Bjork and we are approaching Bjork as a superior person to a certain extent. No, like, for isn't sure. Bjork amazing. And I think that's it has its place, but it's probably manic for me. And I know like for me my initial work is like particular people in my immediate life. Um Ah, let's bring it back. Yeah, you keep Yeah, uh, that's good. Like I I definitely can do it in all phases and I definitely do it with celebrities but I do know for me like right now where I'm seeing it and I'm paying attention to it the most is in my relationships right next to me in my mm-hmm. own life um, and I think that it's been like really helpful like I said I've noticed myself be more confident in places like work because I like love the people I work with and they're really cool and they're all doing awesome unique things and it's easy for me to get into a headspace of looking around and seeing myself as being the least of. And that really puts me in a meek space. It puts me in like a not super confident space. And I think it's been like, I have to go every day and just like tell myself like every single one of us has something of value to offer, including yourself. And you have just as much to say or offer just by being yourself and have to just trust that and be like, yes, yes, trust your voice, be confident. It's okay. So good. Um, but then I also have to watch that I'm not going into the space of superiority because that's also like for me, it's, it's the pendulum swing. It's very classic for, and that there's no middle. It's always these extremes. And so the, the virtue point is equanimity, which is being at peace. It's emotional stability. It's, it's being able to hold things as being equal, seeing the balance in like, in living out that balance. Do you have examples of when you felt equanimity showing up in your life? I don't know. I mean, I think I I don't I don't know if I can think of any like specific examples. Um, 
I think right now it's really internal. Like I, I, I still feel, I still feel like plugged in to the envy. Like I don't, I don't at all right now feel like, oh, I've got envy under control. Right now, I feel like I'm in this stage of being really aware of actually how much it's happening mm. all the time. Mm. Um, and so I don't, I don't know. I don't think I've really done a lot of conscious work towards equanimity. I feel like that right now is starting to become more of something I want to work towards. Um, but I haven't worked on envy, to be honest. I haven't really, it's only been recently that I've been focusing my observation on the envy and it's just becoming more and more apparent. I think, I think you vacillate between being like very judgmental, mm-hmm. but then like the least judgmental. Yeah. Sometimes you're like the least judgmental person I know. Yeah. And then sometimes I'm talking to you, I'm like, that's really judgmental. I can be so judgmental. Yeah. And that that's the superiority yeah. happening. Yeah. Or the inferiority. It could be either. <laughs> it, it really could be either. But that does lead me to be very judging. Yeah. Um, I'm not proud of this. Well, I'm, of I'm honestly of like, geez, I'm really judgmental. And it's, I'm judging myself, but it's fascinating. It's like this four who's this person who's like so unique and authentic and knows themselves. It's actually like this really funny... <sighs> person who's constantly trying to figure themselves out by looking to other people and comparing themselves and seeing how they can find their peg around the people around them. Like it's, it's self-deceiving to think that I'm unique. You know, that's, that's the, the lie I'm telling myself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's that maybe four is more than anybody need to be relieved of the myth of the tortured artist. Yeah. You know, like you can be, you can be, I mean, I've been watching the David Lynch masterclass and he's like, you can be happy. Like do transcendental meditation, take care of yourself and create great art. Be yeah. a happy artist. Yeah. You know, like I know, I know. <laughs> I think that's the thing. Contentment is the work for me. Mm-hmm. I also will just say like, <clears throat> I mentioned this going through this breakup really brought this forward into of like this, like longing and the lack and like I'm, I'm wherever I am. I feel like I'm a little dissatisfied. Like I, I have a hard time looking at my situation where whatever it is and being content with it. Like there's always something that I will find wrong with mm-hmm. whatever is happening. Mm-hmm. Like that is where my focus is, is to finding the thing that's missing and gone wrong. And that's where I'll focus. And so for me, it's kind of shifting that focus to not that, to stepping back, to being content, to realizing what is, is what is. And I can be at peace with that and just trust that, I am enough right now. Mm, man, this is tough. We really did something to ourselves tonight. What do you mean? Like the the four passion deserves an episode. Like it's like we need to do Enneagram 4 with Macy, the passion. The passion. And talk about it for like two hours. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, I'm really getting into this. Like, I think we have comments too, so we should read the comments. Do we have fours? We have, I think, multiple fours. The fours oh, showed up gosh, because the fours the are fours. out there being envious. They know it. <laughs> is Joey a four? Joey goes by Joanna on... Yeah, Joey says... I call Joanna Joey. Um, uh, I'm a self-pres for. Doesn't surprise me, Joey. And I mean that as a compliment. I didn't resonate with envy until I heard it explained through my subtype. When I experience envy, it's an intense longing for something beautiful and a deep and almost shameful feeling of inadequacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a self-pres, I don't externalize my envy onto another person. I internalize it to strive to be better and meet an unattainable goal. Then I start looking like a three because I'm busting my ass, but it's not for achievement. It's to apprehend beauty. Yes. Well said. Yeah. And hide from the parts of myself that feel deeply fall, flawed or somehow missing. Yeah. And then someone 
I can relate to that. You know, I'm don't, Fritz not are doing Dodo too. Is this a new person for us? Sorry. If, are we following this person? We're following them. And they have one picture and five followers. Who is? Oh, it's Hall. It's Holly oh, Hollygram's got a new Instagram. Yeah. Okay, great. That's sweet. <laughs> Hollygram's uh, exactly this. Exactly. I thought maybe I was a three, but I can't connect with three. The achievement for me has always been to hide what feels broken. Like somehow if everything looked beautiful on the outside, it would seep inside. Dang, mm. well said, these people. Mm-hmm. And then Joey responded to that. That's cool that it resonates. Reading the complete Enneagram by Beatrice Chestnut was the first time I really felt yeah. locate, located in the Enneagram. Both my husband and I are counter types for our type based on our instinctive subtype. Self-pressed fours can look like threes. My husband is a social nine. That doesn't surprise me. And can look like a two. But the underlying self-pressed four and a social nine. That's big vibes. Are very different than the behavior seems to suggest. Okay. So that's the four for Joey. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there another four? I think that's it. Oh no, another Enneagram cam. Well, and it's like Who's competition. Fourth? So like a sexual four it shows up as like competition, this envy. Yeah. Like the the self the se- sexual for I think is leans more towards the superiority angle yeah. and the social and maybe self-press leans more to the inferior uh, inferiority side of you the still don't know if you're sexual or social. I know. <laughs> I know. I think I'm mostly social dominant. Well, I Type four. Know. my envy shows up. Okay. Enneagram.cam. Actually, I haven't heard from her in a while. So this is really cool. Type four. my envy shows up in never being content. Yep. I'd honestly replace the word envy with longing. Yep. I'm, <laughs> I'm perpetually longing, longing for my idealized self, idealized life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Longing to furnish my home with all the beautiful things, longing for the furniture or the future, longing for things I felt in the past. Everything but the present keeps me from enjoying and being in the now. And then she said, self-pres instinct 417 tri-type, which I would love to get into tri-type someday. The biggest in eye case, roll. Oh, don't eye roll to Enneagram.com. She's an Enneagram person. She's out here. Yeah, someone convinced me of tri-type. Someone, you know, I'll, I'll be open for someone to try and convince me I'm tri-types are helpful. I'm a believer. In case that info is helpful for you, love you guys. That's sweet. Kisses thank and you. hearts. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they can convince me. I just know that five four one feels right to me. I right, but I just my my thing is there's so much work to do with five. Mm-hmm. You could spend your life mm-hmm. doing that. Mm-hmm. It just muddles. Mm-hmm. It just muddles mm-hmm. the growth, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Okay, another last thought on this. This is just an example that came to my mind as I was listening to those. This is what the envy looks like. So I had to go back to work the other two weeks ago. And the longing looks like I am going back to work in a week and I'm already sitting in sadness, not enjoying the last week of not work I have. I'm already just envious of the time that I'm currently having. Like I'll sit there and be like, and this is where I like get mad at myself. This is where for me, I think getting mad at myself is what I need to do is like, no, Macy, Right now, you're literally longing for right now <laughs> as if it's not happening because you're thinking of your future self and looking back. And it's like you can't be content right now because you're all re- like, it's just it's so maddening. Yeah, like, I feel no, it in subtler ways. Be content. I feel it in subtler ways because it, 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 it bleeds into manic and then nostalgia and beauty. What's mm-hmm. the difference? I mean, I think you told me that like the idea that like during quarantine and no working, we were walking a lot. Yeah. And like. Matthew was reminding you, like, this isn't 
going to be the last walk. You will still have walks. It's true, you know, but I was like, like, it's the last it's one. The last. It's nostalgic. It's <laughs> it's ending. We have to. It's over. Yeah. We'll never have what this was. <laughs> okay, what number sadistic, is this? This is a uh, sadistic eight. Sadistic Ooh, character lust, and lust. 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 Okay, everybody. Here we go. Here we go. We're doing great, everybody. Um, this one. I think now that we're done with five and four, we can speed these, these up. Yeah. Sorry to... I feel no, like... No, I don't think anybody's sorry. I think people want to know that. No, I know. But I do think that, like, people who listen to No Small Thing, I think fours and fives really get most... They get the best juice on Enneagram. Of course. And, and that was interesting that they were back to back. You know, That was. Because we did some deep dive, but... Okay. So here we go. The Spanish dictionary from... I love that every time Nerano starts with some really random reference. I know, I know, The Spanish dictionary... That's Ruben, right? (laughs) You're like, what's this reference? (laughs) From the Spanish Royal Academy, where I dictate this chapter, says concerning lust that it is a vice consisting in the illicit use or disordered appetite for carnal pleasures and gives the additional meaning of excess in certain things. It is the latter definition which coincides with the meaning given to the term by Achazo by his exposition of the proto-analysis. And we may view the former, an example, the more common sense of the term as it is derivative or corollary. 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 <laughs> corollary. <laughs> I'm not going to pronounce it. <laughs> I will therefore use the That's word good. lust to donate a passion for excess, a passion that seeks intensity. Not only through sex, but in all manner of stimulation, activity, anxiety, spices, high speed, the pleasure of loud music, and so on. Wow. Yes. Eights. Yeah. I know. Lust is mapped in the Enneagram next to the upper vertex of the inner triangle, which indicates a kinship to indolence, to a sensory motor disposition, and the predominance of cognitive obscuration. Jeez. Who is... Or ignorance over aversion and craving. At the left and right corners, respectively. <laughs> okay. I want to know this much about the Enneagram. I know, me too. To write all these words yeah. in a sentence and know what they all mean. <laughs> it's not that. It's like it's like what you were saying about watching David Lynch with materials. Like he yeah, has the complete yeah, mastery of what he's saying. Yeah. Not just with the words, but like in his understanding of the Enneagram. You know? Right, right. It's like... Yeah, no, oh, with the upper right good... corner. I'm like, what are you talking about? What? No, I know truly, but the way he talks about it, I'm just like, okay, yeah, oh, okay, right okay. Corner, I really think about that. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, here we go. The indolent aspect of the lusty <laughs> may be understood not only as a feeling of not alive enough, except through overstimulation, but also in a concomitant. Concomitant? I've never heard this word before. Like avoidance of inwardness. <laughs> We may okay. say that the greed for ever more aliveness characteristic of the lusty personality is but an attempt to compensate for a hidden lack of aliveness. Woo! Oh, that is fiery. <laughs> Opposite to envy on the Enneagram, lust may be said to constitute the upper pole of sadomasochistic aspects 
access. The two personalities, eight and four, are in some ways opposites, as these terms suggest, though also similar in some regards, such as the thirst for intensity. Mm -hmm, Can't relate. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Also, just as a masochistic character is in some ways sadistic, there is a masochistic aspect in the character of lust. And while a sadistic character is active, a masochistic disposition is emotional. The former reaches out without guilt towards the satisfaction of its need. The latter yearns and feels guilty about its neediness. Oh, that's it there. (laughs) Just as the envy-centered... I like that we're now getting to talk about force too. (laughs) Oh, I'm here. I'm here too. Yeah. You got to be a part of the last one. (laughs) Just as the envy-centered character is the most sensitive in the Enneagram, Enneatype 8 is the most insensitive. We may envision the passion for intensity of Enneatype 8 as an attempt to seek through action the intensity of Type 4 achieves through emotional sensitivity, which here is not only veiled over by the basic indolence that this Enneatype shares within the upper trout of the Enneagram, but also by a desensitization desensitization in the service of counterdependent self-sufficiency. I'm going to wow. leave it there. Wow. Eights. What's going on there? Eights. If we lust, had you in the room, we'd ask you. Lust. Um, Masochism versus sadistic. S- sadistic versus masochistic. Sadomasochistic versus masochistic. So like, so like for an eight, it's outward. It's mm-hmm. like sort of outward torture messing with abuse and using that in huge quotes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's outward towards others. Whereas a four is it's inwards Inward. towards themselves. Exactly. I think yeah. that's right. I think that's what he's saying. Um, oh, Aron, or Pies was saying in the end, the episode, he's like, this is why the eights are always so close talking to you when they're talking to you. They're in your face. They want the sensory experience. They want all the things that think life has to offer right in front of them. It's baffling. It makes me think of the sleeping at last song who he did. Ryan O'Neill did such a great job of Bones getting the eights. It's like the whole song, he's like, turn it up as loud as you can. <laughs> it's like <laughs> indulgent with all the sounds. It's smashing things. Yeah. It's hitting them. It's it's this like, I feel like I need to be really physical even as I'm explaining this to you. People can't see it, but I'm like, I want to smack things. I feel like that's the energy. It's yeah. this like needing to grab all that life has to have, life has to offer and like live it all out. Yeah. And there's something about what they're saying about the connection between a four and an eight in terms of like authenticity and sort of like this sort of F you vibe, like there's often a posture. Like I think about the way our friend Rebecca, who is our Enneagram eight interview, like it lives, lives in her body. Mm -hmm. Like it's very like, uh, like it's so hard to describe in, in terms of like my, my general posture is like, like kind of like holding myself like shrinking back and concealed. And Rebecca's like very, I'm coming in the room comfortable, mm-hmm. I'm comfortable. And this is what you get. And I'm wearing what I want and you're going to have to deal with that. Yeah. You know, and I feel like you have that similar energy sometimes. Yeah. No, I you think know? that's true. Um, Sexual should I read four? baby Bex? <gasps> yes. <laughs> this is our friend, baby Bex, who is our f- good friend and was on the podcast as an eight twice now, actually. Type 8, I'm pretty sure mine is lust. It isn't like sex lust, but rather a general lust for intense moments in my life. I described it to my therapist as, I need my movie moments. Hmm. And I'll spend literal hours going through scenarios in my head trying to figure out the best intensity for a situation. (laughs) (laughs) Never thought about that. I've never thought about that. Wow, we're all so different. 
I've imagined when I'll walk out of an argument that will probably never happen. The music I'll play when I walk around the city neighborhoods by myself. My first in the air at a protest. Oh, my fist in the air at a protest. Yeah. Wow. Don't think about that. These things rarely ever happen in the way I want them to. But when I get, when I, ah, these things rarely ever happen the way I want them to. But when they do, I get a real euphoria from being in those heightened situations. Mm. I know I've hurt other people by trying to make a situation bigger than it is. Hmm. And I hurt myself because life doesn't pan out to be, quote unquote, a movie moment. I'm disappointed and sobered by the generally neutral to low intensity that life generally is. I also get angry because it leaves me feeling like I rarely get to express those intense emotions that are only fit for a script and a big screen. Interesting. That's wow. Well what said. a nice little metaphor there. That's well said, baby Bex. <laughs> uh, baby Bex? Giving us the, the good content. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. And so the virtue here is innocence. Assessing less and aiming for innocence. And mm-hmm, I feel mm-hmm. like that makes sense. I feel like AIDS, their work is to become more vulnerable, to like let go. Childlike, sweet, soft. Kind of like let the softer side hit. I don't really know what this has to do with lust, though. Like those don't feel complete opposites to me. Lusty feels like consumption. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like give me, give me, give me. You know, like uh, dominance. Yeah, it does feel like yeah. dominance. Yeah, yeah. No, I could see that maybe. And I do know like in terms of the eighth growth path in so much of ways, it's connecting mm-hmm. with that that childhood self that told them that they couldn't be innocent, mm-hmm. that they had to be strong. Okay, should we just go ahead and move on? I think, I, think we, I think what we should do is take a break. Okay. And when we come back in 35 minutes, give or take, we will do five types. Okay, five everybody, types. thanks for being here so far. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. Okay, sevens. Oh, we're back. And we're back. We're back. And I just like to think, like, whatever no small thing is for you all. I mean, we're reading Naranjo here. So if it's like if it's like you're doing chores at your house, or you're doing the dishes, or like you're cleaning something, or like whatever you do. Me you every time I listen to a podcast. Yeah. And and you don't want to pick up this Naranjo book. You don't want to sit and quietly and read. You just want something on in the background. And now we're reading Naranjo to you. That's what it is. So, so hopefully it's entertaining or interesting. <laughs> They're just reading parts of a book to me. What, what is this? Well, maybe you like that. <laughs> we're having fun. Actually, actually, we're having fun reading we're having these having a things. great time. Okay. Uh, gluttony. Bum, bum, bum. Wait, this is sevens? Sevens. Fraudulence and narcissistic person. Oh, yes, so they are those narcissists. Sevens are the most narcissists. Kanye West. <sighs> Probably, actually. Um, okay. In the Christian world, gluttony is included among the seven cardinal sins, yet it's usually understanding as a gluttony for food only makes it appear somewhat less sinful than others. It would not be included among the basic sinful dispositions, however, if the original meaning of the term were not 
as is the case with avarice and lust. Okay, so those are the ones, I okay. guess. Something beyond the literal. If we understand gluttony more broadly in the sense of a passion for pleasure, we may say that this definitely is a capital sin. Mm-hmm. In so much as it implies a deviation from an individual's potential for self-actualization. Hedonism is binding upon the psyche and involves, through confusion, an obstacle in the search for... <laughs> I don't know what this is. This is a Latin term, it seems. Summum bonum <laughs> and a snare. <laughs> so let me read it without his, his uh, Latin there. Um, hedonism is binding upon the psyche and involves, through confusion, an obstacle in the search for a snare. A snare. Search for a snare. We may say that a weakness for pleasure constitutes a generalized susceptibility to temptation. Hmm. And in this light, we can understand Chaucer's, he likes Chaucer, statement in his The Parson's Tale to the effect that he that is addicted to this sin of gluttony may withstand no other sin. Hmm. When I first heard of Chazo's ideas of proto-analysis, this was in Spanish, and he used the word charlatan for the Enneagram 7. This, this word also needs to be understood in more than a literal manner. That the glutton is one who approaches the world through the strategy of words and quote unquote good reasons. One who manipulates through the intellect. Interesting. Yeah, we we forget sevens are like in the head. You oh, know? I Yeah. Ichazo's later word for this personality, ego plan, makes reference to the fact that the charlatan is also a dreamer. Indeed, his charlatanism may be interpreted as a taking or offering dreams as realities. Yes. Uh-oh, uh-oh. This is it. This is naming it. <laughs> Yet I think charlatan charlatanism is more evocative for planning as a prominent trait of any type one and three as well. And charlatanism conveys additional meanings such as expressive ability, the role of a persuader and a manipulator of words, deviously overstepping the boundaries of his knowledge. More than a mere planner, any type seven is a schemer <laughs> with that strategic character that LaFontaine symbolized in the fox. I just need to read one more. I, feel like. I, I am fascinated by this because I do know I'm like sevens are good planners, but I like schemer too. I'm like, that schemer. might be actually scheming, more man. accurate. You're, You're scheming. scheming. You're not just planning. Because <laughs> yeah. of characterized gluttony as a wanting more. I leave it up to my gluttonous readers to decide which may be the deeper interpretation. Yeah. My own impression <laughs> is that though this description is characteristically apt, it points to an instability that gluttons share with the lusty. Also, Although it is true that sometimes gluttons imagine that more of the same would bring about greater pleasure, it is also true that they more characteristically are not seekers of more of the same, but romantically seekers of the remote and the bizarre, seekers of variety and adventure and surprise. In the language of the DSM-3, the any type 7 syndrome receives the name of narcissistic, yet we must be cognizant of the fact that thus, that this is a word that has been used by different authors for other personalities as well. This one feels, this one makes, like, so schemer. much sense. Schemer, yeah. Like, gluttony for a seven, pleasure-seeking. It's, it's that is what they're, they're, what's the word for it? Um, seeking? No, Pursuing? Oh, no, 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 no. What do we always say? Attention? Trance? Trance. It's their trance. <laughs> yeah. It's their trance. It's this pleasure-seeking, I can have what I want to have. This is the pursuit of what's good and right, is to, to get what I want and to have all the things. And mm-hmm. it's gluttonous for experiences, gluttonous for things, for pleasure. Mm-hmm. And it's like comes at a cost. Mm-hmm. 
like you you cannot have things in excess. I feel like this is a hard one for sevens. Uh, yeah, yeah. I guess it goes back to that thing of like wanting to dazzle someone. Like it's it's like for some reason the first thing that just came to my mind is this movie called The Prestige with Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale, Mm -hmm. magicians. Like I'm I'm pulling a magic trick. Like don't look over here because I'm showing you this and ta da! And it's like magic. Yeah. Aren't you dazzled? And isn't life spectacular? And let's keep having this feeling and look, look at, and you're like, and you're like, I see it. You want to say this stuff is like, I see the trick. Like, you don't, what's going on over there? Like settle down. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but I mean, obviously we love sevens. Like they can bring the fun for sure. I love sevens. And I actually like, I think for me as a four, seven is a really tough, a fascinating number for me. And it is interesting about our parents. Yes. But it's like, there is something some numbers, it's easier for me to see the the ripple effect of this kind of passion. And it's like, it's almost the opposite of a four. And that it's like, the fours are always kind of lacking. Mm-hmm. And the, the sevens are always overindulging. Mm-hmm. And so that to me, they, it, I, I, I see this and I'm like, there's a part of me that's annoyed that someone could think they could live like this and indulge and be gluttonous. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm like, I could never morally do that. It's so uh, opposite of my, I would feel so guilty doing that. And I think it's, it's one of those ones that's easy for me to spot when Mm -hmm. I see a seven, like moving a situation around to find a way where they can seek some pleasure out of it and be satisfied in it and avoid something in order to like, for it to be a good experience, I get very frustrated. And I think that's my four trance getting me frustrated, you know? I think there's something about, like, feeling, uh, like, uh, at home, at home with the withdrawn types. Like, I can be like, ah, fours, fives, and nines. Yes. Withdrawn types. And then I can also go the head types. Uh. Five, six, and seven. Ah, home. Like, there's a home to that, too. And it's like, sixes, I can get in the headspace of, like, we're researching, right? You've researched? I've researched. Oh, thank you. I've researched. Here's this article. Oh, well, I have an article. Thank you. <laughs> and we know, we know, yes, we're reading articles. Yes, I've read an article. You've read an article. Here. Sevens, it's like more novelty. And I've always appreciated my seven friends of like, I've read this. I've listened to this. Listen to this music. Listen to this band. I've, and sevens are like, okay. More, sure, more. Yes, sure. Thank Let's you. do it. Let's go for it. Yeah. Yes. And they'll get bored a little quicker, but, but they'll humor me almost more than any other type. Yeah, like, that seven, makes like, sense. What do, what do you want to tell me? Great. Cool. I'm looking to see if any seven said anything. Oh, I don't Lily, think we got Lily, any. Se- Lily. Oh, Lily. Should I read Lily? <laughs> yeah. uh, sorry. Did you have more you were saying? Nope, I feel like, nope, okay. Nope, nope. Um, ooh, I'm so excited to hear y'all cover this topic. <laughs> you guys, Lily, we love Lily. Um, she follows us and she was on our COVID episode. The yep. first one. Big, big Lily fan. Um, when I realized I'm a seven and learned about the seven's passion gluttony, it didn't resonate at first. But once I really thought about it, it's very true. For pretty much my entire life, I've always been stimulated with creative projects or events and planning things for the future. It's an insatiable want for more and more. 
and it can become unhealthy. The seven definitely has a fear of being bored or deprived, and that is what keeps us always wanting more. So we never have to reach that state of deprivation or boredom, when really it probably isn't as bad as we think. It's yeah. definitely a big ego message that tells us to keep going instead of appreciating what we have, and it's been something I've been contemplating a lot recently. Can't wait to hear y'all's thoughts. It is interesting. I feel like these the seven and the four are similar, and yet it's in a different way. It is. It is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I feel like fours and fives both have a lot to teach sevens of just like a four would be like, go dark. Yeah. Think about darkness. Think about it. Go for it. And fives are like. Enjoy it. Be without stimulus. Sit. Yeah. Sit and stare. Yeah. I'm like, I I think about sevens sometimes. I I like, I sit and stare. Like, that's my thing. I just, I I get my coffee in the morning and I was like, I'm sitting and staring off like. It's not like exclusively reserved for fives. Any any number can sit and stare off. But I'm like, I'm thinking, I could do this for hours. Yeah. Sit and stare off. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with it. Sevens. Nothing's gonna happen to you. Um. Okay. I'm gonna look really quickly at the uh. What's the name for the virtue? Virtue. I don't have this one at the top of my head. I'm so sorry, sevens. I will Lily, find we it. We want you to know your virtue. We do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, oh, gluttony to sobriety, ah. which I will also say, I think that some statistics do show that sevens have like a high rate of addiction. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Um, okay. So I just think that's interesting. I don't think that's necessarily what it's saying here, but I don't know. <laughs> uh, sobriety. I don't really know exactly what that looks like, I guess. Maybe just this uh, kind of stripping away of all of the the external things that are keeping someone at peace, the numbing yeah. and being, you know, no, I don't need the, all these things to be content. I can just be content without life is nice. Sevens have that to teach us. Life is fun. I don't need all that stimulus. I'm having yeah. fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. I mean, honestly, we got to, we're going to go hard on these really quick. Okay, here we go. We're going to keep going. Um, <laughs> what number? Two? Six. Six. Oh no, no. Two. Yeah, because we haven't six. done the triangle yet. Here I'm trying comes. to figure out this order. Okay, here comes two. So many thoughts. Pride and histrionic personality. We'll see what that is. We'll find out what that is. Okay, in Christianity, pride is not only regarded as one of the deadly sins, but the first and most serious one, more fundamental than the others. In that great monument of the Christian vision, Dante's Divine Comedy, we find Lucifer, whose pride prompted him to say, I, in the presence of the only one at the center of hell, itself shaped as a cone sloping to the center of the earth. This enormous cavity, according to Dante's myth, was created by the weight of the prideful angel upon his fallen from heaven. In line with religious orthodoxy, Dante assigns to pride the innermost pit of hell. <laughs> and correspondingly... <laughs> Thank you, Narano. According to inverse sequence of the sins in hell and purgatory... The first circle on the slopes of the Mount of Purification. On Mount Purgatory, where the pilgrims escalate successive terraces in the traditional sequence of the sins, the cornice of pride is the lowest nearest to the mountain's foundation. Dante's near contemporary, Chaucer. We love Chaucer. Also, here. why does he need to be, like, every, like, why do they need to hate so hard on this one already? I don't know. <laughs> You're defensive of twos. <laughs> Dante's near contemporary Chaucer in the Canterbury Tales 
gives us a good but incomplete characteristological allusion to proud people in the Parsons tale, which is essentially a preaching on the sins. He mentions among the evil branches that spring from pride, disobedience, boasting, hypocrisy, scorn, arrogance, impudence, swelling of the heart, insolence, elation, impatience, contumacy, presumption, irreverence, obstinacy, and vainglory. The picture that these traits create characterizes an individual who not only asserts his own value, but also does so with an aggressive self-elevation vis-a-vis others and a disregard for established values and authorities. Yeah. True to life, as Chaucer's portrayal may be, it fails to convey the whole range of the manifestations of pride-centered character. Fundamental to it, to it is the strategy of giving in the service of both seduction and self-elevation. Yeah. The official, the official psychology of Enneotype 2 has failed to properly describe this characteristic false generosity in the character. For the descriptions of hysterical character have emphasized impulsive egocentricity, whereas it would be more exact to speak of a complementarity of egocentricity and seeming generosity. The account of hysterical character also tends to interpret the eroticism of hysterical personality as a phenomenon of ultimate sexual origin. (laughs) What is being said here? What is being said? Why do I like reading this stuff? Whereas it may be true. I almost feel like I'm reading a really good rap. (laughs) Like somebody's got bars here. I'm like, Ron has got bars. Whereas it may be true to regard eroticism as a means of seductiveness inspired by a love wish. The view of pride is more sinful than other inclinations may be a good teaching strategy to counteract proud people's lightness about their way of being. I do, th- <laughs> I do think that they're going so hard because I think this is the hardest <laughs> pill for... Yeah, probably. I think this is the hardest one to swallow. Yeah. Yet this is not the view of the body of psychological knowledge that I'm presenting in these pages. According to proto-analysis, all the passions are of an equivalent seriousness. And though one is regarded as more fundamental... What is this proto-analysis? I think that was a chazo. He (laughs) says, he gets that. Uh, This is not a statement concerning degrees of sinfulness or ranking according to prognosis. The position of point nine in the middle of the Enneagram rather evokes the fact that laziness may be regarded as a neutral middle point of the spectrum of the passions and that active unconsciousness, though present in every fallen mind, is the foreground of the Enneotype 9. He goes on and on, and I'm not seeing a good stopping point. Okay, I have lots of, I feel like I have a good understanding of the the pride, because I don't know if that was, that was interesting, but I think that I was listening to Beatrice today, and she's a two, so she really was, like, releasing the wisdom. Bring it back to Beatrice. And it's, this pride is really this, like, this seeing themselves as being better than they are, and seeing themselves as being necessary and almost above other people, and that, like... A, it's this pride of, like, I help you, you don't help me, I don't need help kind of thing. But then it's also this way of feeling good and almost better about themselves because they are because they are the one that is helping, because they are the ones that's doing these for, these, for other people that puts them in this position of pride. Um, uh, what's his name? Pies. Aranio Pies. He was, like twos here's something you can think about think about how excited you get when somebody says that something you did made them smile or made them happy pay attention to how much that makes your week that you doing something for someone made them happy pay attention to what's happening there and think about pride in that and I was like 
oh, that right there. That's the observation. It hurts. It hurts. Um, So I think that's interesting because it's not pride in this, like, uh, twos, I think, can come across as not being necessarily prideful, but I think it's this internal sense Mm -hmm. of pride. It's this internal, and Beatrice even said it. She said, I experience pride mostly when I'm by myself and I'm being reflected. That's when I can be more in touch with my pride is when I'm by myself and I'm aware of it there. Now I want to get really into the wings because then I think like what's going on with twos there too. Like yeah. there's a lot there. There's a lot Choose there. Choose out here feeling prideful. Um, okay, what's the what's the virtue? I gotta just quickly find the virtue. Oh everybody, I'm finding it so fast. Do you have any other thoughts? Was that did anyone comment? Uh, no twos so. comment. No twos. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> Humility? Is that what it is? Humility? Maybe. That seems right. Why can't I find it? Oh, you guys. Okay. Um. Uh. I don't know if I'll find it, everybody. We're just going to have to move on. Look it up. Everybody Google the virtue of the two. Okay. We're going to go on to the next one. If I, I'm still really wanting to find it, though, to be honest. Humility oh, humility. Right. It yeah. is humility. Okay, cool. <laughs> it's humility, everybody. That's all I needed to bam, do. Bam, bam, bam. Bam, bam, bam. Threes. Reuben's wanting his rejuvenation. Should we just have it at the end? Is that cool? That'll be in like 10 minutes. Okay. Is Kay. that cool, Reuben? Yes. Okay. Okay, this is titled Vanity, Inauthenticity, and the Marketing Um, I've also heard this is, as defined as self-defeat. And we're now yeah. on threes. Self-defeat. Not what self-defeat. Self-deceit. So oh, sorry. Well, I was like, self-defeat? What self-deceit. Uh, yes. Which... Self-deceit. What? You said self-deceived. Self-deceived. Okay, you know what, guys? <laughs> I'm just going to read this. <laughs> okay. Uh, vanity is a passionate concern for one's image or a passion of living for the eyes of others. Living for appearances implies that the focus of concern is not in one's own experience, but in the anticipation or fantasy of the experience of another, and thus the insubstantiality of the vain pursuit. Nothing could be more appropriately called vanity of vanities of which the preacher in Ecclesiastes speaks than living for an ephemeral ephemeral and insubstantial image rather than out of oneself. To speak of vanity as a living for a self-image is not different than speaking of narcissism. And indeed, we may regard narcissism as a universal aspect of egoic structure mapped on the right corner of the Enneagram. Uh, I like that phrase. I heard it for the first time today. Egoic. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. a nice little structure. Egoic Ego structure. structure. Okay. Yes, I will be using that, I'm sure. <laughs> Yet, since the word of narcissism has been used in reference to more than one personality syndrome, in most since the publication of DSM-3 in reference to the Enneatype 5, I have not included in the chapter heading. Thank you, Narano. Vanity is present, especially in the hysteroid region of the Enneagram. That's the heart region, everybody. Yet, in the case of pride, as we have seen it, it is satisfied through a combination of imaginative self-inflation and the support of selected individuals with an Enneatype 3. Instead, the person mobilizes herself to prove objectively her value through an active implementation of the self-image in the face of a generalized other. This leads to an energetic Ah. pursuit of achievement and good 
form as defined by quantitative or generally accepted standards. A generalized other. The what difference a, what a between any types three and four lies mostly in the fact that the former identifies with the image that it sells, while the latter is more in touch with the de- den- denigrated, there we go, denigrated self-image and is thus characterized by the experience of vanity never fulfilled. As a result, <laughs> any type three is cheerful and any type four is depressive. I'll leave it there. Okay. Wow. Restraint. Self-deceiving. I think vanity shows up in the virtue as you talk. Sure, that would be great. <laughs> um, I uh, think this one makes a lot of sense. It's it's this idea that a three's trance is in adjusting who they are to the environment. Yeah. They are a chameleon. They will self deceive and they will adapt. All their, they will adapt to meet the needs of the image of the people around them. A three is most likely to wear an outfit or change an outfit to a, just to please a certain room. Exactly. It's just it's because they know the situation and they'll adapt to the situation. And the self-deceiving is also this sense that a three doesn't necessarily even know themselves because mm. they're so wrapped up in finding their image by looking out at others and doing what others, what, what the right kind of image is to do. Man, I just think about like, we're really flying now. I know. I read that really fast. No, it's good. I mean, I mean, we're, I think there's an, there's a sense of like, it's late and we just want to have a nice chill night after this. Like, and not like be. Well, and just not make part. a three hour episode. That's the other part too. Um, but I think about like, being in a relationship with twos and it's like we can take twos for granted in the sense that they're just so giving. And yeah. So I want to make yeah. sure we acknowledge the good sides of these things. And then like threes currently working with a three that I really appreciate. It's like so freaking productive. Yeah. Yeah. Like always getting things done. It's amazing to watch. I'm amazed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, do you have a virtue? Hope. Hope. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> you were really surprised by that. I am Hope. surprised by it. <gasps> I thought I feel like I would think of it as like I guess like to me I would think like authenticity would be the virtue. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know. This is fascinating to me. Hope. Hmm. Well, we're not gonna get into it. We're not getting into virtues tonight. <laughs> We've discussed this. Hopefully your interest is peaked. We're gonna do an um, episode on virtues. But someday. no, I agree. I think uh, Naranjo went hard on twos, and I hope we know. We, we prefaced it, but it's like, we love all these numbers. We're all crazy in all of our ways. That's what we're here to talk we about. We love these numbers, and I'm the triggered size. by certain elements of these numbers, and I know certain numbers out there are triggered by certain elements of my personality. So Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, cowardice. Now we're at six. a six. Cowardice, paranoid character, and accusation. What's the passion? Cowardice, it says. Fear. Interesting. Fear is another fear. way. Fear. It must yeah. be fear. Yeah. Um, but I love the persecuted persecutor. Oh, I know. It's such a good, it chuzzles words for the passion, the fixation of Enneagram type six, as mentioned in the introduction were timidity and cowardice. Okay. Timidity may be taken to mean an anxious hesitation or inhibition of action in the presence of fear. But if this is so, then the meaning is not very different than that of fear, which I'm using to designate the ruling passion of this character. If we use fear or cowardice to designate the ruling passion of Enneagram type six, however, we need to point out, as in the case of anger and other emotions, that this important emotional state need not be directly manifested in behavior. 
It may be alternatively manifest in the overcompensation of a conscious attitude of heroic striving. Wow. The counterphobic denial of fear is no different, in essence, from the covering up of anger through excessive gentleness and control, the covering up of selfishness through excessive yielding, and other forms of compensation manifested through the range of characters, particularly in some of the sub-eneotypes. More characteristic than fear and cowardice in many eneotype six individuals may be the presence of anxiety, that derivative of fear that might be characterized as fear without the perception of external or internal danger. Mm-hmm. Holy smokes. Mm-hmm. Even though fear is not among the deadly sins, the transcendence of fear may be a cornerstone of the true Christian ideal, insomuch as this involves an imitatio Christi, imitation of Christ, to a point that is necessarily heroic. It is interesting to observe, however, that the Christian ideal shifted from that of the early martyrs to one pervaded by attitudes which Nietzsche criticized under the epitaph of slave morality. Ugh. Unlike the Greek notion of virtue, this is dense. I know. We, we chose the dense book tonight. <sighs> I'm, I li- I'm it, happy. I'm also thinking about <laughs> listeners. I'm like, are they just hating this? <laughs> I'm here for it. <laughs> Unlike the Greek notion of virtue, which emphasized courage, As Nietzsche pointed out, the ideal of Christian society supports an excessive obedience to authority and an imbalance in the direction of Apollonian control over Dionysian (laughs) expansiveness. We're also just like learning to pronounce words here tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just as we... Oh man, I have so many thoughts. Just Just as we may witness a degradation in Christian consciousness along the specific path of courage to cowardice, we may speak of degradation in its understanding of faith. While faith is in proto-analysis, the oh, psychoanalysis that lies as a gate of potential liberation for the bondage of insecurity, this is an altogether different thing from that the word has come to mean an average religious discourse, which is a firm holding onto a set of beliefs. I'm going to stop there. Okay. We don't need to read any more about sixes from Naranjo tonight. No. Fear is the passion, and we can say some things that we know about sixes. And I might even cut some of that out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is the most obvious of them all. This one sixes is... Sixes are fearful. Sixes are fearful. It's driving everything. They're skittish. It's the way... Skittish. Uh, for, forecasting what could go wrong. Always thinking of worst case scenarios. Anxiety. I think that's the thing. It's, it's getting at this idea of outside of their perception. They're mm-hmm. fearful of things even... That's not, they're fearful of danger that's not even there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's, that's, the, that's the thing that they can't escape, but that we're working towards escaping, I guess. And the virtue is courage, which yeah. I think makes total we sense. Know that. It's doing we it see anyway, it. it's stepping into it, it's, it's being, it's, it's acting despite the fear. And, and that in itself is bringing its own virtue into the world. When the six is courageous, that makes me feel like I can for sure be courageous. You know? Absolutely. Like that's Absolutely. so well inspiring said. to me. Well said. Okay. We're going to go on right away to those nines. We got them sloths coming up. <laughs> them sloths. Them sloths. This is the finale, right? This is the finale. Let's see what words and references we've got coming here. <laughs> and let us know, did you like Naranjo tonight? Or were you like, you guys, maybe pick a different book. Honestly, I, think we I think excited this is the, the beginning. Book. I know, it's so good. I mean, it's no small thing. <laughs> okay. So big. Ooh, this one, I've always heard it as sloth, but this is called Psycho-Spiritual Inertia. 
I, I will say, I think you and I both relate to this idea of like, there is something tantalizing about a word I don't know. Oh, well, I like, like it. What? What? And I, Apollonian? <laughs> Dionysian? What? <laughs> a goic structure? <laughs> goic structure? <laughs> what did we read last week? Diamond? Di- <laughs> you lost it on that. The diamond consciousness. The diamond consciousness. Okay. Scott's so excited he's sweating. I'm sweating thinking about this. <laughs> okay, psycho-spiritual uh. inertia <laughs> and the over-adjusted disposition. Okay. The word... Over-adjusted disposition. That hits me in my gut. I know, I Being know. Being married to a nine. <laughs> Stop adjusting. <laughs> Do you. The words laziness and indolence, which Achazo designated the ruling passion of the fixation, respectively, corresponding to the Enneotype 9, fail to convey what were originally intended to signify before sloth was introduced instead of the earlier Latin term acidia, acadia, acadia. I think it's acadia. But it's got an I in it. Also, we can see that Naranjo is already, he's like, Achazo was wrong. Yeah, low, low key, like just like brushing Achazo. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, Professor Gianni of the University of Chile writes what Saint Saint Thomas Gregory the Great Saint Isidore Cassian, <laughs> to cite only the more representative authors, designated as. <laughs> We're, going, we're ending on a good finale here. A is a very complex phenomenon <laughs> in a far from translations, okay. such as lack of motivation toward action in other contemporary translation. All right. Okay. In turn, a translation from the Greek, achidia, <laughs> no care, in parentheses, no care. Acidia, Achidia, refers to a laziness of the psyche and of the spirit rather than a tendency to inaction. And so does indolence in the context of this book. Here we go. We're getting into it. Such spiritual laziness may be spoken of in terms of a forgetfulness of God or in non-theistic language, a deafening to the spirit and a loss of the sense of being to the point of not knowing the difference. Yes. A spiritual coarsening. Yes. A psychologically acidia <laughs> manifests <laughs> as a loss of interiority, a refusal yes. to see and a resistance to change. Yes. Dorothy yes. Sayers in her commentaries to Dante's Purgatory writes that acidia <laughs> is insidious and assumes such protein shapes protein Protean. shapes that it is rather difficult to define it is not merely idleness of mind but the whole poisoning of the will which beginning with indifference and an attitude of i couldn't care less extends to the deliberate refusal of joy and culminates in morbid introspection and despair uh. one form of which it Wait, one form of it which appeals very strongly to some modern minds is the acquiescence in evil and error, which readily disguises itself as tolerance. Oh. Another is the 
that refusal oh, to nice. be another is that refusal to be moved by the contemplation of the good and beautiful, which is known as disillusionment, and sometimes as knowledge of the world. Oh, this is getting into it. The combination of loss of interiority and the resigned and abnegated character that goes along with it results in the syndrome of a good-hearted, comfortable earthiness that may be exaggerated to the point of literalness and narrowness. And he's type nine is not only one who has not learned to love themselves as a consequence of love deprivation, but also one who forgets their love frustration through a sort of psychologic. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Drum roll. Pachydermism. <laughs> that seems right. Isn't that right? That's a great word for a nine. An oversimplification. Wait, wait, it's not taxidermy? Pachydermy. Pachydermism. Oh, my God. Pachydermism. Let me see see that word. (laughs) This is what people are here for. This is good. Pachydermism. Keep reading, and I'm going to look that up. An oversimplification, a psychological amputation that makes them the least sensitive and the most stoic of characters. Precise, I'm just going still, precise as all the above may be, it fails to suggest the pervasiveness of spiritual laziness in the world and its manifestations outside of hermitages, hermitages and monasteries. For it is not a lack of religiosity that characterizes any type nine, but rather the contrary. What? Did you find the definition? <laughs> I just think... <laughs> It, for some people, half the episode may just be having some enjoyment of us doing these words. these words. Listen to this. <laughs> Pachydermy? Listen to this. This is, this is crazier than anything we've read tonight. This is crazier than anything. <laughs> Listen to this. A nonspecific term for leathery subta- subterraneous induration due to an accumulation of inelastic connective tissue as occurs in acrimology or due to accumulation of protein-rich mucin, collagen, and fibroblasts. (laughs) (laughs) That makes no sense. (laughs) That's worse than anything. (laughs) Huey, what the word? So crazy! <laughs> it's a joke. Wait, but this isn't uh, the right Google, word. What? <laughs> what is it? I've never read anything so crazy. <laughs> I don't think you spelled it right. What is it? What was that? Oh my gosh! <laughs> we are. <laughs> Oh Oh, no, it's not showing up. You're right. Oh, what? (laughs) I haven't laughed that hard in like five years. That really caught me off guard. Okay, but also a pachyderm is is a a thick skin (laughs) non ruminant ungulate. (laughs) Yeah. But what is pachydermism? This is gonna stay. That word has no Google. No one on Google knows what this is. No, but but Matthew, pachyder psychological pachydermism. There's so much context. Ruben can explain it. Please, please, please. 
Please. Okay. Please come. Please. Can you come and do this it right should, now? You should lead right into the Ruvenation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, everybody, that's nine sloth. <gasps> your path. Ruben's going to explain this number, and then he's going to do a Ruvenation. He's gathering his things. We're pulling our crap together. Um, let's see what the... Oh, it's it's rightful action okay. is the, is the virtue of the nines. nines. Nines, we love you. I hope that that Naranjo wow. brought any... I don't what know. is this episode? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here comes Reuben to explain pachydermism. Did you say psychological pachydermism? <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> that pachydermism is like... No, no, no. Can you explain no. it on there? Sure, yeah. yeah. Is... And is this a Reuvenation or a poem? Well, there's a couple of short poems. Oh, yes. I do want to preface it. I'm putting down my microphone. I'm handing it over to Pachydermism is like, isn't it some kind of like ossification? What's that word mean? <laughs> like, you know, it's like a boning. Not like <laughs> having sex. Like the thickening of like like something like a bone-like materiality hmm. that does not allow it to move, right? That's what it means, right? Oh, that makes sense. The thickening that it doesn't allow it to move. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes sense in the context Ossification. Of mm-hmm. Does it? Can or I, see? I, w- I would always say like, uh, like um, calcification. Calcification. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Also, one who forgets his love frustration through a sort of psychological pachydermism, an oversimplification, a psychological amu- amputation that makes them less lily sensitive and most stoic of characters. Okay. That makes sense to me, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. It's actually interesting because a- amputation is, seems to be like a clue, right? So amputation, like the loss of a limb. Right. I was thinking of like. In terms of, there's a deep dive that I'm not going into, but like the idea of like joint and articulation, right? Because I know that that's a phenomenon, right? Calcification in the joint, so that right. you cannot really, mm-hmm. have. and joint a joint is interesting because it is both a separation and a connection, <laughs> right? A, 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 this we is are s- uh, such a funny. This is such a funny threesome too. Like we're all just like. <laughs> Okay, let's, <laughs> yeah. let's do an episode yeah. on that. No, joints. That's actually <laughs> joints. Uh, I actually, I have. I used to have a long. I used to be more, more like actually, like intellectually interested in joints. Joints. Um, but I think in in kind of like what I study. Trend. One of the things I study translation in like diaspora. People have used like joint as like a metaphor of like sameness that is not like identical. Mm. So let's say like uh, the Asian diaspora in the United States and the Asian diaspora in Indonesia, right? There is some kind of identity, but the identity is not, you know, you can't just say like, oh, there's this like essential Asian-ness that mm-hmm. shares, but you can see kind of like moments of connection. Ah, yeah. that makes right? sense. So it's like, so like that's like uh, joint uh that kind of um the way that I've used it conceptually. Well you've always, I've always been learned a lot mm-hmm. when I hear you reflect on your relationship mm-hmm. with China. Yeah. I'm just like I have no idea. But it does seem like there's a joint strange yeah. relationship and yeah. overlap there. I feel like I grew up in a kind of there are different kinds of Chinese diaspora in Indonesia. Uh there's one that is more kind of like because uh, Chinese people have been going traveling, you know, before even was Indonesia for centuries, even before the Dutch came. So there are kind of uh, there are Chinese people who have kind of like married into like indigenous cultures. 
I came. I grew up in a da- the diaspora that came later, hmm. and who tended because of like colonial politics, but also because of uh, kind of like Chinese exclusions from like legal structure and political structures, and uh, into kind of like we tend to keep to ourselves. Hmm. So we kind of have a different relationship to like you know mainland China than like uh, yes, but it's like the idea joints. of this joints, right? The word that, that's used a lot is like articulate, articulation, mm-hmm. because articulation on the one hand can mean like expressing something, but it can also mean like linking something up. Dang, like articulation. man. <laughs> why, why do I never get tired of this sort of thing? I have to have so much self-control. I know, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Rubination? Rubination. Okay. We're so far into this episode. Okay. <laughs> we were losing crap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I it was so funny. You're like literally just like, I think the the last time I was made to laugh, you know, you can cut this. The last time I was made to laugh so hard by reading something was I was reading this book on, like, a history of, like, 20th century, like, development in, like, you know, like, classical or, like, experimental music. And I was reading about this guy named Carl Stockhausen, who's, like, a pioneer in kind of, like, using, like, electronic stuff. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But he he has a quartet called helicopter quartet where you know four members of like the string quartet each gets onto a helicopter (laughs) and they just like play (laughs) and they have like headphones what and i was crazy yeah but it's so funny when you're like words just start making you laugh (laughs) i was blown away that whatever i read even if it was not the right word to look up that was 10 times more complicated It was like a practical joke. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Ruvination? Ruvination. Okay. Winding down. Ruvination. Did you guys talk about Chaz at all? No, we didn't. No, okay. Chad, uh, no, I'm just like thinking episode. a little bit about just uh, because it's Macy and I yesterday, we were like looking at who's, what's her name? Uh, Laura Ingalls. Oh, the person on Fox News. Yeah. No, no, Laura Ingalls is the writer. Uh, something Susan Graham or any I don't know, Susan Boyle, but like this certain lady in Fox News who has a show. Oh, uh, I think uh, Laura Ingram. Laura Ingram. Yeah. yeah. Does he have anything to do with this? With the school? No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's uh, people are like, or like you know, even like fucking Donald Trump, like being so like agitated by the fact that there is this thing. <laughs> And it's, like, so funny because there's nothing to be agitated about, right? It's literally people, like, sharing food, hanging out, planting a garden, (laughs) artwork, and, and, I mean, yeah, and there were rumors about kind of, like, oh, like, uh, you know, they're extorting businesses, which, you know, have have been disproven by, among others, like, you know, the person who is the head of the Capitol Hill Chamber of Commerce. So, you know, uh, there's no, there's no conflict of interest in there. Uh, so it's, uh, it's interesting to kind of like think of people just being mad because of like something that they don't understand, but also in a way something that they kind of like understand, hmm. right? Because I think there is... There's a way in which, you know, at one point you cannot 
separate misunderstanding from understanding. Because, because if you think about it, misunderstanding to the person is like also like an understanding, right? So when you see, you know, when you see like that, like several blocks, people hanging out, being kind of like uh, sing, you know, like singing in public or like doing art, kind of like it's not that they don't understand what's going on, right? Maybe they understand it and they're just like, there's no police there. Therefore, it is like this unlawful, you know, or like, uh, you know, there's unlawful, this is unlawful. This is kind of like Laura Ingram yesterday was like, <laughs> what's like, like, this is like land that they don't own. Like, this is not their land. This is not how we roll in America, which was, mm -hmm. this is how you roll in America. <laughs> uh, she was like shockingly beside herself in this interview. Like, oh. like, I watched Ben Shapiro or Charles <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, I can't believe this. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so, it's... Yeah, all this stuff was really mm -hmm. exposing. Yeah. Yeah. And you can, you can think of it as like, oh, they, they really don't see it. Or like, or they see it and they just, that's what, why they're so upset. Yeah. Like, it might not be even a matter of like, you know, if you see them, you know, if you show them like planting, but you know, like people are planting seeds in there. Or like, they're look, look, they're singing. No, no. Maybe they see what they're go going on and they don't like it. Right. So... I'm thinking of this, uh, and to me, it's so interesting because, like, it makes me think of all the uh, people throwing statues, like, dragging them off and throwing them off into the water that I've been seeing. And to me, that's almost kind of like, there's like so symbolic in there something's i mean you know of course there's something symbolic in there but it makes me think of these other you know these what do you call these types these fox news types <laughs> or whatever uh these talking heads uh, that's too nice uh because i like talking head the talking heads yeah but these uh these people as kind of like having something of like a memorial in their in their in their head right and it is on the one hand like so sad or like so so it's so enraging funny but also like so sad that people have like mem you know i think of like mem like a fucking like robert e lee <laughs> statue in like in their head and i think you know they should also throw it into the sea I don't think they should throw themselves into the sea, or I don't think we should throw them into the sea of restraint. <laughs> but I think they should throw their own statues into the sea. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, this is a very, this is a kind of like a, a, this is like a crazy moment. I feel like it's, Walter Benjamin <laughs> has this like phrase that's great where he, where he says, and you know, he was writing in the, th in, the in, you know, like, in, you know, in the, right in the thick of like Nazi Germany, and he's Jewish, right? And he he has this thing where line in his essay that's been translated into either a thesis on the philosophy of history or on the concept of history, where he says like, you know, if we lose, even the dead will not be safe from like the victors. Mm. Yeah. So there's this i there's this idea that. Uh, what can be remembered, right, is not settled. Mm. 
right? That the past, in a way, can either be sort of a kind of like it's sort of like a fulfillment of like history, or like you know, or it can be just kind of like another deferral, right? Because I think even if like whatever we're doing right now, people are doing right now, fails, it's just a matter of time before it breaks out again, mm-hmm. right? So I think. I remember Zizek saying this about like Walter Benjamin, where he says like you know Benjamin has it right like the ghosts of past revolutions walk among us, mm-hmm. like the ghosts of all these things are like they're kind of like waiting, ghosts. right? And I think that's one thing that you can you can that the dead don't go away, yeah. right? Yeah. Like we are walking in the midst of ghosts. And one day we will be no less real or no more real than than the ghosts. I think it's it's ghosts is probably one of the the best metaphors. I think I would think people should think about this. It's just you are in the company of ghosts. And watch some horror movies. Yeah, I mean, yeah, horror movies. You can watch some horror movies, but like literally, there is this. Ghosts aren't necessarily horrifying. No, no, I don't think so. I think there is. Yeah. You should do a whole episode of ghosts. Also, revolution. Revolutions. Yeah, and so (laughs) what we're happening now, right? It's not like something. I think it's it. It'd be great if people could think of it not as something new. I mean, something about it is new, but it's think of it as like a part of like a tradition. Yeah. Yeah. Look in a history of where like things like this happened, right? You can think about, you know, the Paris Commune. Yeah, you know, they're, today. yeah, yeah. they're probably like much more like more contemporary uh, um, examples. Well, yeah. Amsterdam, yeah. Yeah. Even in Seattle too. Uh, That's why I think one of the things that I don't like is, uh, and after this, I'm going to read the poem. I really don't like it when people kind of, I know that this is a common lingo and I can understand it in context and I'm not going to like fight with people over semantics. But if we kind of like think about this, reflect upon this, I think the the, the kind of the, the, the names like progressive and conservative are really not helpful mm-hmm. because I, I think people are really, some, a lot of people think about it is in terms of like there's tradition which must be cast off for us to like move forward, mm-hmm. right? Well, first of all, who's tradition? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I, I'm not, you know, if I want to speak to, like, white people, it's like, I'm not a part of your tradition, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, like, you know, you don't bring me into this, <laughs> right? Uh, or this idea that, you know, for me, it's hard to, like, learn about my own history, right? Because, like, you know, like, it's you know whatever it's not part of like a national history you know it's a, it's adjacent to a national history but also there's history of migration so it's like everything right at one point you're like probably got to learn about the whole world <laughs> right um and you know like if you, you there's nothing to conserve if you can't find your history like what the hell am i supposed to conserve right <laughs> so sometimes it's like you know people have like different ideas of like traditions right where they're kind of like you know like the vision does not come from like, oh, we're like breaking away from tradition, mm-hmm. right? But kind of like the, kind of like the, um, the like I'm drawing from traditions, 
Like there was actually like an, an ancestry that I feel myself, you know, like the yeah. ghosts of my four parents, right? So I think um, this is something that you can think of like, it's just because it's so iconic right now, right? Whatever, ha you know, maybe it will Jazz. become Chaz, right? Mm -hmm. But think of like, think of it as kind of like, you know, I, I get it it's if something new can be kind of, like, unsettling, but, me, you know, that's also the point. But also think of it as, like, look back. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, maybe it's not in your tradition, but maybe it's in other people's traditions. Mm. That's wise. Yeah. And I think the boundaries between traditions are not, you know, are not, um, like, set in stone, right? I mean... Joints. Joints, mm -hmm. right? Like, there are... I mean, maybe you can kind of, like, okay, I... I you know, like the history of white people is not like separable at the end of the day, right? Yeah. Maybe you can be like, okay, I'm going to break down those like barriers. Hmm. I got to stop like looking at, like, you know, looking at kind of like the historicity of whiteness as something that can be like taken for granted, hmm. right? Uh, yeah, so look for those, look for those moments. In that, <laughs> in that, in that uh, spirit, I do once you read a couple of poems. Both of them are very short. I know this is already a long... Let it be a long episode. Okay. First uh, poem is by Kwame Alexander. It's very short, but I think it's very funny. It's called Life. This morning, I woke to find termites eating away at my home. My friends assured me that the good liberal ones were not involved. <laughs> That's a poem. Like a yeah. poem. There's yeah the uh, but there's another poem that I that it's not long to it's short but it's uh, it's it's a different mood. <laughs> <laughs> it's by uh, Lucille Clifton called Mulberry Fields. Mulberry Fields. They thought the field was wasting, and so they gathered the marker rocks and stones and piled them into a barn. They say that the rocks were shaped, some of them scratched with triangles and other forms. They must have been trying to invent some new language, they say. The rocks went to build that wall there, guarding the manor, and some few were used for the state house. Crops refused to grow. I say the stones marked an old tongue, and it was called eternity and pointed toward the river. I say that after that collection, no pillow in the big house dreamed. I say that somewhere under here molders one called Alice, whose great-grandson is old now, too, and refuses to talk about slavery. I say that at the master's table, only one plate is set for supper. I say no seed can flourish on this ground once planted, then forsaken. Wild berries warm a field of bones. Bloom how you must, I say. Just a little time. Just a little something else instead. Just a little time. Just a little something up ahead I'm dreaming of. 